0: everyone thanks for tuning into power athlete radio we know that the way the military has been conducting physical training is in general very antiquated but why given the accessibility to information and the push internally from certain niches to make a shift why is the process so hampered Dave Spanton of Blackhawk Lending and the MF US Army is here to unravel the mystery that has been decades in the making. Despite the red tape, there is a far more complicated reason that our warriors aren't getting the optimal physical prep that they need. Beyond that, the crew discusses history both of movies, naturally, and US presidents. It's safe to say that three out of the four people on this show have zero chance at a career in politics. Especially with their long standing position on lifting the burn ban. Here it is, episode
1: 332. Our athlete
0: nation,
2: are we rolling? What's happening? This is Luke, the doer of the group, <laughs> and Tex and John. Featured guest, John Wellborn, and off camera in the corner over here is our special guest who we'll get to momentarily. But first, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to... Uh, thank you for turning
1: on. Thank you for listening I to... tuning into the premier podcast in strength condition. Ing. Ing, ing, oh, ing, 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 Didn't get an ing out of that guy.
2: Yeah, harumph. No harumph. No harumph. We are about to dive into another episode. That is kind of a long one. What are we tracking
1: right like now? Like seven hours.
2: Yeah, two hours and 30 minutes. Uh, with our dear friend, Mr. Dave Spanton, who worked alongside us, helped us with Symposium for a couple of years. We'll get into the history there. And now is doing some, some cool stuff to give back to the veteran community as a veteran himself. But first, we need to talk to you about a party that we are throwing December 5th, 6th, and 7th.
1: In Austin, Texas.
2: The Power Athlete Symposium. Mm. (laughs) This is a three-day extravaganza. Well, it's more of an experience, John. I'd say it's an experience. It's not a clinic. It's not a conference. It's an experience. We're bringing some of the thought leaders that have influenced us the most over the past year or two to Austin, Texas, to provide you, the individuals attending, an experience like none other. So it's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday PowerAthleteHQ.com slash symposium. We have our speakers announced up there. We have Chris Morris, podcast alumni. We have Raf Ruiz. I guess they're all technically podcast alumni. But Raf Ruiz is going to be there. Um, what's different this year? Kyle Turley. Oh, KT. Kyle Turley is going to be there. Dr. Craig Bueller is going to be there. Josh Bridges is going to be there. And a few more to be announced. But if you were to go to PowerAthleteHQ.com, events, PowerAthleteHQ.com slash Symposium. You can find out all the information that you need to find out about those speakers, about the venue, about the location, all on that web page. It's party people. So do it. Show up. What was I going to talk about? Oh, what's unique about this year is we we're doing two venues located very central to downtown Austin. The second venue, first venue is 800 Congress. Right on the main drag in downtown Austin, a view of the Capitol. Beautiful, beautiful building. It's going to be awesome. That's where the Wade's Army silent auction is. That's where our boy Kyle Turley will be jamming. That is where Tex oh, will be tased. There will be tacos, tasing, and turtley. The three T's.
1: That's it. That's Thursday. That you think we can get Kyle to be playing like a song like, um, I, don't, I don't know, like. Uh, the electric slide? Smoking. <laughs> smoking. I was thinking smoking or one of his songs, like Wild Texas getting tased. I think we can. Like-
2: oh, you know what? It reminded me of the original Batman. Do you remember the original Batman where the Joker handshakes the guy with the trick, like handshake yeah. buzzer? And he's like, "Ooh, we're getting a little hot under the collar here, huh? Um, that's, yeah, we'll have that plan in the background. I have a whole, all sorts of ideas. So the three T's, Thursday, tacos,
1: Turley, tasing. It's four T's.
2: The four T's. And then there's Friday. Friday opens up with a practical where all attendees will be participating in the practical. That's what's different about this year. Um... Our coaches network is going to be taking every attendee through uh, a series of movement drills. Right. Mm -hmm. to culminate with one large training exercise and we get right into speakers and day three, the final day opens up with another practical session. Again, open for everybody, all access. And we're going to expose you to three of the more creative and progressive thinking coaches and specialists that we have in our back pocket. Right? And they're going to be taking you through all sorts of interesting coaching that you can use on your clients, yourself, your family, um, the next day. Right, So it's going to be epic. Events.powerathletehq.com symposium. But now let's chit-chat with our dear friend and founder of Blackhawk Lending, Mr. Dave Spanton, and supporter of the Power Athlete Symposium. Shall we? Let's do it. Go. I figured I was spending the day with you guys.
0: I mm.
3: thought we'd maybe burn that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> still take, the, take
2: the burn ban off.
3: <laughs> Is
1: Burb, burn ban's been off for weeks.
2: So we have a, a
3: potential so six-hour
1: show. I brought a small hose. Mm-hmm. I thought we'd basically keep a forest fire from starting. Mm. I still have that picture of you fucking out there with a the garden hose trying to fucking the, the the thing's like twenty-five feet. What do you mean trying? Did the, did the property like, burn down? I was like, hold on, let me go. Yeah, I had to go get a skid steer and make a fire ring. Because you felt uncomfortable.
3: I thought we were all doing a great job that day. That fire was contained, bro. I, I thought it
1: would, I, yeah. Yeah. The day when I become the voice of reason for something like that is the day that shit's fucking about to go off the rail. Well, i be like, oh, it's fine. He'll be, he's fine out there. He's got a fire extinguisher. Look, you looked at me, and you're like, hey, man, have you done this before? <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, it's fine. Like, it's... <laughs> It's kind of burn. I was like, "Yeah, it's gonna burn high and hot at first. It's not that windy; it will be fine.
1: I, I'm, dude. I've never burned anything like that before, and not intentionally. Oh yeah, I've caught a lot of stuff on fire, <laughs> but I didn't tell you before <laughs> that is. I, I had a little problem. Fun. I had to get some counseling. They call that
3: arson. I uh, I caught. Uh, so we had about two acres of grass growing up, and uh, I caught it all on fire. Get <laughs> out there, <laughs> fireworks! My, yeah, my dad's like, "What the fuck?" He comes around there. Was like, uh, you know, high school kid, head in your ass, and he's like what are you doing I'm like oh it's just like I, I don't know he's like we'll go get the hose so like an hour we're sprinting we, we thankfully just kept the grass on fire and then about two weeks two three weeks later in Illinois it's beautiful right yeah. and I'm like maybe we should burn the fields more what do you think of that dad he's like okay <laughs>
1: it's like the field almost caught fire I was like yeah it's fair how's uh how's your lease uh you got any good pictures or you got any good intel or like what's going on with deer season so i think deer is going to be a little light based on the amount of
3: hogs so i think we now have a hog lease for a year or two and <laughs> oh, then, the, hog, uh, the
1: hogs came in hard huh oh fuck
3: man yeah yeah we have well just the other day at two thirty in the afternoon were 20 hogs um and so this cow her boyfriend is a chicken farmer, right? So, like, the the industrial chicken coops, he's got thousands over there. And so he dumps all the chicken shit in one of these pastures. So it's about 150-acre pasture. So these hogs, as soon as he dumps it, these hogs just, right? So 20 to 30 hogs on there. We were just getting ready to go out and fill some deer feeders and uh, had just sighted in rifles. We are like, oh, let's get this thing dialed in. You guys know about my wind mag and uh, the
1: issue there. Um, So get it sighted in. Go to open the gate. What, it, it kicks too much for your gentle shoulder? Easy. So you can only shoot it like once every two weeks? Is there? Are you supposed to shoot the wind mag more? Well, yeah. I mean, you might have to shoot more than two rounds to get it sighted in. I mean, you just fucking go hot and get it on paper and then fucking twist it, shoot it, and it, confirm zero? 17 rounds was enough that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were there like, I'm pissing blood. I was, uh,
3: I was cringing that last round. But anyway, so we get it sighted in and uh, pull up and we're like, oh, okay. Stand on top of the gator. Uh 250. The back pasture's three, so 250, shoot the hog, boom, big guy, big guy drops. Do I rack another round? No, it's a wind mag at 250. So you just shot one? Go to get in the gator, and that hog gets up. Oh. And hobbles, hobbles across the property line uh, to another property, and then we didn't find him. We, We walked the wood line, and we're like, all right. Wow. So, yeah. So we've got a hog lease for right now. Then
1: we went... Dude, that hog got up after you fucking got it with a 301 mag? Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. He, uh, the hind legs were all fucked up, <laughs> and uh, but he got to the wood line, and we're not going to go traipse around somebody else's property in deer season, so... Yeah, I remember that big hog that I shot with a three oh eight, and uh, I I was like, man, I must have missed him. And then, like, probably, and then I walked down there looking for him, couldn't find him, and then the neighbor kid found him, like, a week later. He's like, there's this big hog skull. And I'm like, God. and then he showed me right where it was, and it was, like, a direct line of sight, and I was like, oh, God. I mean, it's you know. It's thick over there. So I feel
3: comfortable because my neighbor was on the glass, so he's like, you got him, right? So I just hopped up, went to get in the gator, and he's like, hey, he's... He's running. He's all fucked up, but he's running. I was like, what? Get another one. He's in the woodland. I'm like, all right, well, there's one with an asterisk.
2: Yeah. I support it.
3: So then uh, field feeders, walked up on a couple doe, three doe, went and sat on another open pasture, a couple more doe, walked out. I think it was two of the three, couldn't see a buck over there, um, so we're going to have to spend a little time. Saw a couple turkeys. Um, so we've nice. we've got wildlife in there. We just need to clear out those hogs. No, no deer are going to come in there with the amount of hogs we have, yeah. so...
1: No, we haven't. I, I haven't seen any hogs yet, and I've been waiting for them. So I'm kind of surprised. Well, we'll take you out there. We should go out just one afternoon and okay. making an easy
3: easy yeah. afternoon. Um, well, um, can
2: you charter a helicopter? I mean, as a helicopter pilot, couldn't you fly us around and we just oh, miss a bunch of hogs? You no, know, you're just always
3: asking for something, pushing for more, right?
2: Uh, the hey, nice would thing, you, John appreciate it? Hey, the John, offer. we want to. We are Dave. We'll give you our company if you want to fly your helicopter around your property.
1: Well, we'd have to get a helicopter first.
2: Oh, you don't? I thought you just get to take that with you from?
3: I don't even, I don't even know what to say to that, to be That's honest That's a real you. thing?
1: No. Oh, well, I'm should. sure we'd get a Craigslist and find one.
2: A Bird? We were
3: selling. We were selling for a while. We were selling the old um, H-60 Alphas. So they were like early 80s, and uh, you sell them once they're demilitarized. You can sell them on the open market, right? Everybody's got to take a shot. And they were selling originally for like one one five, and you could pick up an old Alpha. Model. There's a guy out west that bought one. And uh, you basically show up, right? They're flyable. show up, do a little FAA inspection, and he had a pilot and he was an old army guy. And they flew, flew off it in home. The, yeah, flew it home in this thing.
1: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so they were a million, million five, huh?
3: Yeah, I think the first couple, and then they, they like, lowered the price. Def- no, once the defense company started getting in there, they were buying them, uh, buying them for more than that.
1: Wow. That's awesome. It's interesting.
2: Old Tom Dye used to have fucking.
1: He did. Tom Dye actually Hell had a pad at his spa, right? He well he had his uh, his property converted into an FAA landing pad and then he built his building and put doors in and then had a skid like a um, like a platform built mm-hmm. so he could land the helicopter on the platform, pull the the blades in and then drag it in with his forklift and park it inside. So I feel like if you're doing that, there's things that
3: you don't want the FAA to see when you're trying to get that helicopter in the barn super quick.
1: I know, I dude. I I asked him why he uh, like what the reasoning for that was, and he said, "Well, um, I like to bring it in so that when Loopy uh, details it, because every time he'd fly, he would have Loopy detail the helicopter." Which was actually insane. And then I was like, man, this is crazy. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, I used to, I, like Tom Dye's deal was he had the, always wanted to have the biggest, fastest, uh, most powerful boat on Lake Austin. Mm-hmm. So he had like a hundred and f- foot or 70 foot like cigarette boat and he would buy, he, and he would park that in his building and then he would make uh loopy who was his, uh, like basically his indentured servant detail this thing. And like the pictures were incredible, like these boats were insane looking. Like it was something out of like Miami Vice. Yeah,
2: Miami Vice now or Miami Vice? Well, like I think 1984. Th- I think they
1: did long boats in the new one. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, that's right. He did. They yeah. they did cut that scene out. I did if love you, his line yeah, where he goes, "Director's cut." I'm a fiend for mojitos. <laughs> but yeah. like the fact that somebody actually wrote that line and used it. Who knows? Like, Maybe they didn't, and that's, uh,
4: that's Colin Adlib. Farrell, right? Is it Colin Farrell? Yeah, it was Colin Farrell. Apparently, he doesn't remember filming that movie, so he was all hopped up on booze, like extreme alcoholic, so he was all messed up, doesn't remember filming that. It's like Sizemore in Saving Private Ryan, doesn't remember a lick of it.
3: <laughs> Makes me think of Airwolf when we were talking about helicopters getting pulled in. I was like, oh. I'm still... I bypassed the boats. I'm back to helicopters. Oh, and uh, yeah, I got what's to see Airwolf.
4: Is that a helicopter movie? You've, You've never ever seen
1: the TV show Airwolf? No.
4: Dude. With... Uh, who happened to have,
1: uh, Dominic I'm a, I'm Santino <laughs> was was his buddy, and his name was like... I'm with that. Was I'm it Sinjin... Oh, Apparently they're remaking oh, it, guys. God, what was um, I, can't remember I? Just remember details. his buddy was like Dominic Sant- Santorino. So or, is this
2: the helicopter version of Fall Guy?
1: Uh no. Like these guys somehow like appropriated this helicopter from the military and then would use it. They were kind of like the A Team, but with helicopters <laughs> instead of a fifty-five episodes. They had this, this is... mountain that they would just <laughs> yeah, descend, it, and it was it's a Bell four hundred six,
3: basically, right? But they had it all painted black. It had missile. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. But oh. as a kid. It's like, that it is was the coolest awesome. thing
1: ever. And the, the hilarious part is Airwolf is still my wife's favorite show. Because whenever we were talking about each show she's like, I loved Airwolf. That was my favorite show. I'm like, Airwolf? Really? So Here's after
4: I had, go ahead. The tagline, quickly on this show, I've never even heard of this. Airwolf is the most sophisticated helicopter imaginable. Flies halfway around the world and outruns jet planes. That's the plot line. So that's, it's uh Rider. it's Rider. What's, what's, no, it's Rider. what's, yeah, what's the name of the now. guy?
1: It's uh, 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 Stringfellow Hawk. Hawk. Stringfellow Hawk. And then <laughs> Dominic Santorini? Is it was his buddy who was like the fat guy? Yeah, the fat yeah, old. That's
4: it. Is it yeah, the, Santini? Yeah, Santini, Santini, Santini. That's McHale, the actor from McHale's Navy. Yeah.
2: And then you had Michael Coldsmith, Coldsmith Briggs, the string fellow. Hawk. Caitlin O'Shendanese, and then what? season four introduced St. John Hawk. And why you guys are hating, man? This thing. It was awesome. a great. No, no, it, it was, was a, like they phenomenal had that show.
3: So this will make Abby having seen it. Uh, I was at Southern Illinois University some years ago. Was that the catalyst for you to become a pilot? No, they had had the aircraft in the hangar. So Southern is a big aviation school. So then they had it in the hangar. And I was like, no fucking way. The guy's like, yeah, this is Airwolf. I was like, nah, I got to see it. He's like, yeah, come on. Toured it. He's like, this is Airwolf. Like, tail number, everything. He's like, this is it. I'm like, "Ah, all right. Did you get in it? Life complete. Of course I did.
1: Oh, of course.
2: So apparently the backdoor pilot was a Magnum PI episode. So the concept of this That like, makes sense. Uh, uh
1: pretty it was, interesting. Because my
2: old man watched Magnum, but I we never watched fucking Airwolf. This is bonkers. Uh have, you prob- pop... yeah, Pop's eighty four, season one, CBS eighty four. Why did we i to yeah, have to have I a know. long talk with my father? Yeah. It was, might not
1: have been cleared to see that. Uh what? it was good. <laughs> it was a good show. Uh but it, it definitely was very A team ish, where like mm-hmm. they had these like missions that were like kind of like off the books. I just remember there was like we can't solve this problem. We got to call an airwolf. And then these dudes would like drive out to the desert and be like, they had this bitching thing where they were like flying out of this, like kind of raised mountain thing. I just remember. And it was like, had pretty cool lighting, but I don't know where the lighting was coming from. No, it was cool. I wonder what it, so
3: (laughs) when, when we were, uh, when I was in high school, my dad took me out to Mount Rushmore. Um, so we go out there and I'm like, uh, how about a helicopter ride? Like you could just hear his, you know, pocketbook open. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, come on. You know, I push him, bring up Airwolf. I was like, it's coolest thing ever. He's like, all right. And uh, so, so we pay for this thing, and it was Vietnam helicopter pilot, the old like, you know, big big ball helicopters, and uh, pick up out of this thing, nice Vietnam takeoff. I was like, yeah, I'm hooked, and this is it. And uh, my old man's, yeah, he's a little nervous in that thing. I was like, yeah, this is great. The guy, <laughs> my dad's like holding on to the glass, like, oh. Can we?
1: Uh, are you sure it's not over? He's like, no, we got play, we got a like half hour left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we be closer to the land and the the, the ground? No. Um, I went to Mount Rushmore, and I felt like every other person that's ever gone to Mount Rushmore, you basically like take a picture, like have somebody take a picture, and you do this with your finger until it looks like you're picking one of the president's noses. Oh yeah. So I like thought I was being original, and then I and then I looked, and like everybody was doing it. They were like, it's pretty funny. But uh, yeah, Never Mount been. Rushmore. Pretty, pretty amazing to see, uh, only to, to actually see Dakota? the, the Geronimo see. monument. Yep, which so we, is, we yeah. flew by both, uh, helicopter pretty. tour on both. It was awesome. So we did that
3: on the um, Prairie Dog shooting trip.
1: No shit. So yeah. it's out that way? Uh, it's in the Black Hills, South Dakota. It's a few hours further. you got to go yeah, well no past way. Wall Drug, And okay. then you got to go to Deadwood. Um, and I had dinner at, and allegedly sat at the table that Wild Bill Hickok got shot at. So he had his back to the door, and he got shot. So I sat at the table. Allegedly, had a steak, had a bunch of drinks. Sounds legit. Yeah, it's a nice area. It's uh, it's hard to get to, but it's worth it's worth the time. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a cool drive. I think I uh, I drove up from Kansas City and went there, and I think I stopped and saw the world's biggest ball of yarn. It was pretty neat too. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing out there.
3: So depending on which
1: way you take to get
3: there, there's Wall Drug. There's Ball of Yarn. There's yeah. House of Corn, I think, is also yeah, there. I think the, I like,
1: started. I think I think I stopped at the House of Corn, where like the entire thing and all the stuff inside is made of corn.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's it's breathtaking, really. <laughs> it's
2: the, the sights to see, man. Some people, kids,
1: will never know. Ah, dude, I I dream one day of being able to road trip and take my kids to these awful places. Uh, I'm like the House of Corn. Yes, get in there. Yeah, yeah. I want
2: to say in the Simpsons that it was like uh, the House of Wigs. Or something like that. Where Bart, they, they stole a car, went on a road trip, and did this exact same thing, but it was like things were uh, switched around.
4: Yeah, I remember. Remember? Yeah, Nelson. Yeah, World, world Tour. The yeah. World's Fair in, in Knoxville. What was that big in, Well, know. Speaking
2: of pop culture, do you know today, as we record this, is the 20-year anniversary of the release of Fight Club? So 20 years ago today, really? it came out in theaters.
1: Uh, we saw it on opening night.
2: So now you know what you did 20 years ago. Yeah, opening night. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that got punched over to me and like did a quick Google and it's a bunch of write-ups on how that movie has not withstood the test of time. Not? Nope. Celebrates the misogyny and toxic masculinity and all the shit that that movie is.
4: Is like, that how you celebrates. feel?
2: How do I feel? I don't really watch movies with that lens. I think it's a fucking interesting story and
1: uh, lots of cool shit. What's today's date? October fifteenth, nineteen ninety nine. Is the day it came out? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Yeah, we mm -hmm. went saw it opening night in Philadelphia.
2: Yeah, they said the best character or the best role in that movie was Brad Pitt's leather jacket. (laughs)
3: <laughs> uh, Who's just, they? Who's this they? Yeah, this was an go. Esquire article first, that I thought was pretty funny. Oh, Esquire, you just
2: perusing Esquire with <laughs> all your free
1: time. Esquire <laughs> and Vice. So you have a baby. Uh, Esquire and
2: Vice and Esquire.
1: need to just fucking go. Yeah, um, my I, Esquire hour is from 9 to 10. I think uh, not only has Fight Club stood the test of time, is probably, I think, one of the best movies ever made. I love it. Best movie ever made? One of the best. What makes it the best? Um In Death. Everybody has a name, and that name is Robert Paulson.
2: His name was Robert Paulson. In death, mm-hmm.
1: but nobody has a name in Project Mayhem. But in death, everybody's named Roger. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many obscure, weird things in that movie. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I just feel, I think it's a good movie.
2: But yeah, I, I feel great. like we're in an interesting time where movies have to fit the mold of society. Like you're not. It's not allowed to be fairy tale. Right? Well, like it can't be counterculture.
1: But I, I also think that. Uh, the problem becomes that now there's this hyper-focused idea of toxic masculinity where I don't believe that uh, that exists, and I think that's
4: completely fucking made up and, and a fallacy. I, I did listen to the author of Fight Club on Rogan. It was a pretty good interview, and he said the his book and the only other book that supported male character development was Mice and Men. Mm-hmm. So he wrote the book with the intention of just providing a, an opportunity for, like, young men to have a beacon to develop and have that internal So he said For
1: Mice and Men was the only other book that ever had male From development?
2: His
4: perspective. Wow.
2: I'm out of my element here, so
4: I can't... Aren't you going back to classics, though, for reading to Ruby? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, no. what just about just makes me think of the movie Patton? What about uh, like what about Catcher in the Rye? I'm surprised you oh, didn't put. Sorry, Catcher. sorry, not Mice and Men. Catcher in the Rye. Okay. it was Catcher in the Rye, not um, Mice and Men.
1: I'm sitting here like replaying Mice and Men and being like, what was the character development of Mice and Men? You, yeah, I, w- okay, I was right. mistaken. So if he's if he's relating Catcher in the Rye to Fight Club, uh, I can totally buy in on that one. How many of you guys? We'll take a straw man's poll. Also, for listeners, I have actually read
4: Catcher in the Rye. High school, I got to go back. I, I can I'm definitely do. It that.
2: was assigned. I passed the assignment.
4: Were you? I a don't cl- think you think I were
2: I ever cliff read notes, though? guy. You were uh, a Cliff Notes guy. I don't guy? even know if I read Cliff Notes. I just kind of bullshitted my way through those assignments.
1: I what was the name of the recall. main character? Do you remember? No clue. Holden Caulfield.
2: Yeah. No. I. W- Do you
1: remember who wrote it? You said no, and then you said yes. Do you remember? Okay, who was the author of Catcher in the Rye?
2: Should have rephrased that. Um,
1: J.D. JD, JD, JD. Tolkien. (laughs) J.D. Stop Googling. Salinger. Look, I already had it up. He's got cliff notes. (laughs) It's J.D. Salinger. I'm quit. uh, So
2: I'm aware of these references, like I'm aware of character and author, but I. So you're out on
1: Catcher in the Rye. Mm -hmm. You're out on Airwolf. Mm -hmm. But. And kind I mean, of lukewarm on, <laughs> and kind of lukewarm on Fight Club.
2: Yeah. Well, no, I'll tell you what. There's a, also I was reading Vanity Fair earlier. Um, in Shape magazine had an interesting article as well. Don't double down. <laughs> Don't double down. This isn't chess, man. You can't
3: pawn this off of somebody else. Just own it. Hey, you like Esquire?
2: I, I search Fight Club
1: anniversary. And what uh, you'll see, the first article is an Esquire article. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure. And you know, sure I'm, a
2: first ar- I'm a first link clicker.
1: Like, there's usually like. It Vice, is the first link. There's like Vice, Vanity Fair, you're going to have Medium, you're going to have all these uh, uh, fucking progressive, awful fucking legacy. Well, magazines. before
4: I even get into it, the, the top five articles, Dave, you might appreciate this on Esquire Jimmy Carter is a baller. <laughs> so, but this is where you get your news. It's great. No, no, I can't look at me with Jimmy Carter.
1: <laughs> you know what's amazing, Big Jimmy Carter guy. <laughs> what, <laughs> you know right? You know what's amazing about Jimmy Carter is he was generally considered to be the worst president in the history of the United States, and now uh, because of like uh, you know all the humanitarian, <laughs> all the humanitarian efforts he's done, he somehow. Uh, and he's outlived really a lot of the generation that fucking hated Jimmy Carter and mm. generally thought he was the worst president, you know. I mean, the jokes about it were he's just outlived people long enough to the point where like generation are like, "Oh, Jimmy Carter, he's a great guy." And but then if you hear somebody who was actually around like my dad being like Jimmy Carter was awful. Uh peanut farmer and had no business being president. You didn't
3: like thirteen percent, thirteen percent interest rates, gas prices. To oh, the roof. dude! Uh, uh,
1: as my dad said, it was like a bomb. Somebody dropped a bomb on the economy for the American people.
3: It was a reaction. It was a reaction from kind of the '60s, early '70s, specifically Nixon, and it was just overreach. Right? They had an opportunity. They organized that Southern Democrat vote, um, and and that's how we got it. And obviously, there was in a reaction when you when you put Reagan back in the office. So it's kind of the opposite of that. But uh, I think people still kind of harken back to that farmer average guy um, from time to time, which makes today interesting and certainly don't want to dive into that. But I think that's what people still kind of want. Right. And they idealize that.
1: Yeah. But the interesting thing is uh, in history, people forget where Carter sat in this whole thing. Like, people kind of, like, forget that, like, oh, they're, you know, they remember Nixon, and then it's like, I ran contra Reagan, and there was this whole thing where people just, like, missed it. And I'm like, what about that fucking part of the country? What about the fucking gas crunch? What about, like, you know, the pictures of people fucking lining their cars up for for miles for, you know, when the gas shortage happened? Mm -hmm. Well, there's that.
3: There's Lyndon Johnson as well, right? Bring it even back to locally here. People, the way people remember Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson in a far different way than how he got to where he is. He was, you know. Shrewd, right? He was funded by basically one Texan here. They got him his start and then passed some some great legislation, you know, arguably. But to get to that point, um, he knew and learned how to pull the levers of the legislative branch. And then once he was in the White House, he was able to really twist the arms and get what he wanted passed.
1: Do you think he, uh, I mean, LBJ is not remembered in great light either? Depends, right? It depends Depends. on where you're sitting. If you're sitting here in Texas, he is. But I would say on the world on the uh, national stage, LBJ wasn't considered. I mean, especially with a lot of the illusions being made that he was, you know, involved in the assassination of Kennedy. Yeah, not to go in the conspiracy theorist. No, route, no, no. But
3: one of the things that he is remembered for, though, is the ability to to move Congress in the direction the presidency wanted. And so he definitely strengthened that position through his knowledge of the inner workings of the Senate. And so while some folks, and, and historically, I guess maybe they don't look upon it greatly when you look at some of the civil rights legislation he passed, mm-hmm. and you can kind of argue that both sides, but he certainly moved the needle the way he wanted to.
1: That wasn't an um, affirmation one way or the other. Were you asking me to take a position? On yeah. That? I, know, I know you're so <laughs> political, you never will. Uh, that, but, hurts, man, uh, that hurts, man. That hurts. That's just what you do, you know, mid- middle of the road. It's, no, it's not middle of the road. Uh, it's appreciating both sides. History will define it. Yeah, I don't, haven't
3: researched the exact um, result of the legislation to the point where I'm comfortable taking a stand that his legislation was positive or negative. I think it's actually kind of been cyclical, and so I think you need to get out 80, 100 years of history to really determine, hey, this president's view of this oh, yeah. really was the right way. Um, I can appreciate both sides of the argument, and I'm kind of informing myself on both sides of those, but if you look at Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, right, he was you know, defeated, uh, in his presidential run from the Republicans, when he had his last bull moose party, but stood the test of time on being the right guy at the right time. Especially when you look at everything he did for public lands and yeah. uh, the office of the presidency as well, he was a guy that who was very uh, not humble beginnings, but was not uh, somebody to surround himself with kind of the aristocrats in the White House. Now you know he's a New York guy and definitely a pre, you know Harvard guy and porcelain club and all that, but. When you look at his house, even up in Sagamore Hill, it's very basic. It really is basically all of his hunts.
1: Well, there's also uh, a lot of folklore around Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, the fact that he was giving a speech, and the guy pulled out a gun and shot him in the chest, and the bullet hit him where he had his speech tucked in, and it was about 50 pages. And then I also think he had his wallet there. It was his eyeglass cover. Yeah, his eyeglass cover. So it stopped the bullet, and then everybody thought he stood back up and said, I'm okay, and went on to speak for another hour. It actually went in, lodged inside of him as well, and uh, bleeding out, and
3: uh, still finished the speech. Still finished the speech. Got up and then kind of stuck with him for the remainder of his life. And you know, I think he grabbed that guy. I think he grabbed the guy and was like, you know, why? Basically asked him why'd you do that, and then carried on with the speech. And uh, you can see the if you Google, you can see the eyeglass cover in the in the papers.
1: Yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's. uh, I I think history is the only, um, you know, like. Uh, history becomes the judge for whether or not everybody, you know, was successful or not. I mean, it's kind of like I was, uh, um, you know, my my mother-in-law is a, uh, a staunch Democrat, so we were having some discussions and I went in there and, of course, she watches way too much CNN and other stuff. And so as we got into this, you know, what do you think about this? And I'm like, well, here's the, here's the problem. It really depends on which lens you're looking through. And right now, every, you know, everybody is saying, oh, Obama was so... I'm like, dude, I can go through all of the different issues that Obama had in his presidency that I consider to be, you know, very good, but now everybody's just kind of pushing around and pointing at different fingers. I mean, like the everything from, like, the Fast and Furious scandal, which, uh, you know, or the IRS where they were targeting different groups. I mean, every, any one of these should have resulted in him stepping down. I mean, dude, the fact that they lost those guns basically, you know, on his watch, to, and then those guns were used in the killing of border guards, I mean, that was a huge problem with the DOJ. Yeah, I think I think that that brings
3: brings to light why right Trump was elected and why people just I don't necessarily think they were they were pulling for Trump, maybe per se. But I think a wide swath of population had been disenfranchised for so long that they didn't really care who was in there, whoever was going to break up both parties. Um, and I think I think they understood how to pull those levers and how to convince people that was what they were there to do. Um, definitely is it. And so, yeah, well, I take a stand and say it was right or wrong. No. Well, hey, let's uh, see. So, but I think so that's dad, why that reaction. Yeah, so,
1: fit. my dad uh, worked on Richard Nixon's campaign. Uh, so, my dad was big in politics in California, and uh, he was in this, you know, worked on Nixon's campaign. And he said he had the opportunity to go to dinner, and he sat at this dinner with about 25 other people with Nixon. And he said, not only was Nixon probably one of the most intelligent, smartest people he'd ever been around, he, said he was extremely charismatic. And Nixon's entire speech and like the he had the talking points and everything was uh, how to mobilize the silent majority in America. That there was this underlying silent majority that had been long abandoned by the two parties, and that Nixon's belief was that one day a candidate will rise that will mobilize that silent majority and dominate the political landscape regardless of of, uh, of party. And uh, I re- and uh, one, I'm sad my dad since passed. But one of the reasons is I would love his commentary because, uh, you know, my dad's whole thing was um, uh, he believed like he was, you know, he, he always said to me, he's like, the, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened in America was what Teddy Roosevelt did with the national parks. Like he believed in like the inherent nature. I mean, my dad was an e- Eagle Scout and like the idea that there was national parks and we could go visit them. And there was this idea that like we had to preserve nature to him was like by far the greatest uh, mark that anybody could have done, and any president that would like, hey, we're going to drill this and this, like that was fucking big against him. Like he was a big donor to like the Sierra Club, and so you know to see the uh, uh, presidency. But I remember talking with him something about like you know the Trump deal, and he's like, you know, he's uh, he's somehow mobilized that silent majority, and we went back and talked about Nixon, and he goes, he. The people that felt disenfranchised, that left behind by Washington, D.C., that there was no longer represented. Here's this candidate who, you know, he's kind of a I wouldn't call him a Republican, even though he ran on the ticket. Uh, I mean, Trump was a Democrat for years. And, uh, you know, to be able to go and mobilize the silent majority, you know, I mean, that's what he's been able to do. And, you know, as a result, uh, like him or not, I mean, uh, uh, D.C. politics is doing their best to drive a stake down that man's heart. When you
3: have, when you have, you know, a House of Representatives with the power that it has, that is so motivated um, in one direction, it's they, you really see the level, levels of power that they were given, right? And you know, it's a 2020 play. I guess one of the things I learned about my time on the Hill was. Leverage, right? It's all about leverage. Nothing is as it seems on the policy side. I know there are good people up there and and policy does have a part of it, but you can't pass great policy without understanding leverage. And so leverage and then just follow the dollar, right? And so if you think something is happening the way it is, you just try to peel those layers of the onion back and it all comes back down to who is motivated by what that can really help clarify and and make it easy to understand what's going on now. Is it the end all? No, I think there are definitely players up there with decent policy implications, but um,
1: it's interesting. It's all about leverage and then following the money. You know, having read a ton of the, you know, the early constitutionists, uh, you know, like uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Locke, especially, I mean, I remember reading all the information of Laura extensively on the social contract, the idea that you're born in this country and there's a social contract from that living here that, hey, you know, we'll agree to do certain things and you agree to do certain things. Uh, But the interesting piece with the social contract is the social contract becomes null and void when it no longer benefits both parties equally. And so the, the statement is was an interesting one that the social contract became null and void many, many years ago when no longer was both sides being benefited equally. And you know, I mean, you can take a look and see what's happening in California, where they you know pump a ton of money into. I don't know if you saw it with the gas tax, they convinced everybody to vote for this thing, where now they you know increase the gas tax to fix the roads. Uh, but within that that legislation, it gave uh, the state legislature the ability to raise gas prices at will without consult without a vote. And so they've been now. You look in gas as you know two three bucks more a gallon in California than anywhere else. And uh, what did they do? They didn't fix the roads. He robbed it for his, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom for, his, for the rail. So now they're going to go in and, and take that money that was supposedly to fix the roads and the infrastructure in California, which is the worst, it, you know. I mean, the only other time I've seen roads that bad would be maybe like 40, you know, I 40, like some 35 is probably pretty bad. But like the California roads are terrible for a, country, for a state that has that much money. I mean, I think if you pull California out, it's like a top 10 in the world for GDP. And to have like the infrastructure uh, from like the waterworks and the gas and the roads to be that dilapidated—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's unbelievable.
3: Yeah, Illinois, is, Illinois is the same way, right there. I mean, there's a slew of tax taxes being raised in Illinois, going after the same deal, and it's yet to be seen whether they get used for what they're for. But at the end of the day, you know, the Illinois legislature is in session almost all year they're making good money and when you get downstate in those rural areas you don't have people making that kind of money and yet they're still being dominated by some of those big cities going back to to the public lands and then what california is doing right when when states get are given public lands right there's kind of this big push kind of nationally if well why should the federal government spend this money on public lands? Well, obviously, I think we kind of fall into why it's good for everybody and why it's good for the nation. But historically, when they would give money to give these lands back to the state for the state to maintain it, the state would <laughs> immediately sell it and use that money for education, right? So then they were building schools or the state would make money and kind of level their books that way. And then that land is gone you know, forever um, for all taxpayers. So it's interesting to see what people are doing with the money. Like I said, it always comes back to following the dollar.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Texas has the... I mean, the the amount of public land in California is pretty high. You know, I mean, there's like off-roading parks and hunting. I mean, like I was looking at Texas, there isn't much public land hunting.
3: No, I think it's around 1% to 2% of public land in Texas. And as it was being formed, that was intentionally done. Um, So Texas became a state, what, 1845? And they decided hey, Texans are better to maintain this land than the United States, and rightfully so, right? It took nine years for them to become a state after establishing independence, and there was obviously a lot of conflict there. In fact, I'm reading a book called The Raven on Sam Houston. Right Mm -hmm. now, I just started it. Um, Chris, you may be interested in it.
4: Um, I'm in. I I think I told you that's Sam Houston's nickname because at 17, he got bored with, I guess, his society in Virginia and just went and lived with the Native Americans, Mm -hmm. and they called him Raven. Tennessee. Tennessee.
1: Well, you know... uh, um I've always had a fascination with Bowie knives. I don't know why. So uh, ever since I was a kid, I think when I was six years old, for my sixth birth or sixth Christmas, uh, my mom gave me this uh, pretty cool Bowie knife. And like I just always liked knives. Like my job when I was a kid, like when I was three years old, was uh, when we would cook. I would cut all the vegetables, and I always wanted the biggest, sharpest knife. And so I just always really liked Bowie knives, and uh, became always a fan of Jim Bowie, and like. Uh, you know, read about, you know, his passing at the Alamo and like the history on that dude and like how he like actually went and had his own knife designed and that. And so I've always yeah. oh, I've always dug Bowie knives. And then the fact like when, uh, you know, World War Two, when we went into the Pacific Theater, how they issued those badass uh, Collins and company. I think I forgot they're like uh, number 13 or number 18 when they issued those Bowie knives to, like, the original Red Raider guys where they had, like, these green bone handles and then they issued all those knives to those guys in the Philippines. Those original Bowie knives from, like, you know, World War II are so killer. I've seen them on occasion and, like, they have, like, a, I mean, this is pretty dorky, but I always appreciated, like, uh, utilitarian knives. Like, I mean, there's, like, knives that people have and they store, but, like, the knives that are actually used for a purpose... Uh, like the badass like uh, stiletto daggers that they issued to the early special forces dudes Mm -hmm. um you know and like uh you know they used them in like the battle of the bulge and that and like i just thought it was killer that they designed these uh these like you know sharp pointy weapons with a utilitarian purpose specific for each deal that they knew that hey they needed these big buoy knives for the pacific but like on the you know european theater they wanted these sharper fucking stilettos to go through body armor it's just super cool to me it, uh
3: that makes sense now after shooting deer with you and I like you know I'm just reaching in my pocket to get out my knife and like by the time I literally reach <laughs> into my pocket Paul' knife Johns like here's five which one would you <laughs> which
2: one <laughs> which would you open? You, yeah. yeah right I, uh, no,
3: and all of them were super sharp super nice knives yeah. i uh, uh,
1: i have that one Skinner that i got that guy made me out of that piece of bone and then he put that little uh texas little um like little like ornament on the end like on the cap and that little Skinner Damascus Skinner is so sharp and that thing was perfect for cutting uh, but, uh, I did fucking fuck up my, uh, my sacks when we fucking hacked through the bone, chipped it. So I got to fucking clean that one up.
3: Well, I would say that you weren't hesitant to get in there. I was like, well, uh, nope, here we go. Like, Let's fucking cut <laughs> shit up. I, hey,
1: <laughs> the way I look at it with knives, if, uh, if I use the knife for a purpose and I chip it or yeah, break it, right. then it wasn't up to the task and I'll fucking fix it. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I was given a knife.
3: I, I want to say I was eight, nine years old by my great uncle, um, had kind a of military service thing in our family, and uh, my great uncle was in World War II. His brother, my grandpa, was in Korea, and I remember my uncle Connie. He got his leg shot off in the war, and then he had this uh, farm, ranch, wherever you're, wherever you're from. So he would take care of this farm, a couple hundred acres, with with one leg on crutches, and he was state uh, skeet shooting champion. So he was, you know, outdoorsman, and he handed me this knife well before I probably needed it. It's like, Hey, every man should always have a knife. <laughs> It's like okay so you know you know most of the time you carry one and you get to school and you are like why do you have a knife yeah. you're like well, my uncle connie said man yeah, uh, you got to carry these. which is why I'm so thankful oh. for the knife that uh that you gave me
1: John. thank you
3: that's why I always carry it
1: it's good mine's oh. on my desk oh <laughs> yeah mine's not on me either mine's on my desk but yeah no I I do uh we've had uh, team gifts from strider knives so yeah. um jade yeah, but... and the guys from strider are good friends of ours and you know fans of power athlete and so, yeah, so we reached out and had some cool Strider knives. But, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, um, I am I tried, like, uh, um, I hate cheap knives. That's, like, a fucking pet peeve for me, like, cheap knives. Like, that's why I'm always, like, if I'm going to give somebody a knife, it's going to be a nice knife because, like, something that, like, you'll hand down to your kids, you yeah, know? Yeah, it doesn't just stay in the drawer. Yeah, or yeah. Some, something utilitarian. Like, I, I just, uh, I've never been in a situation where I've been like, oh, why do I have this knife with me? Like, I find myself all the time, like, my entire life being like, God, like, oh, thank God I have this pocket knife. Well, and the nice thing about it is, right, there's always a story. So, I have a, a couple of knives that have been given
3: to me, and I every time I pick them up, right, I remember that story. Um, when I was in Iraq with my uncle, um, special forces guy. So, when I was in Iraq, I was there with my uncle, my older brother was there, and then my cousin was there. So, we used to fly around and see him. And so, we were getting ready to, I was flying my uncle at one point, point. we were loading up, and I had a Gerber. So, you have a Gerber on your flight gear, you typically have. Um, just a knife in your pocket or something, and he's like, he didn't see the amount of knives that apparently he deemed proper for a mission. <laughs> 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 and he's like, "Oh, hey, uh, where's, where's your knife?" And I like had to stick again my hand in the pocket, right? And he's like, "Oh, no, no." no. And then he had like two knives. He's like, "You need to stick that one in your boot." And I was like, I'm like, flying <laughs> fucking helicopters here. Uh, we never know. And he's uh, you know he's always doing a little bit different mission set than me. So yeah, he was always he was always dolled up with those things, but. Brings a smile to your face every time you open that nice knife.
1: Well, yeah, and then the hilarious part is my kids open them, and then, like, uh, the, the closing is always pretty funny. I yeah. like to yeah, show them over and over again. But, no, it's good. I mean, I, I like the, f- like, I think we have a knife my brother gave me sitting over there. I think I was 10 years old when he gave me that Rambo knife. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, look at that crazy fucking thing. I mean, that thing is, I, I'm not kidding you, it's over, that thing is over 30 years old. And uh, can you imagine 10 years old and your older <laughs> brother? That's what my brother already gave me for my 10th birthday. And so I still laugh. And I'm like, hey, Ed, I still have that Rambo knife. This was from Rambo 3. What what year is Rambo 3? <laughs> Fuck. Uh, 90...
2: No, it's 80's. 89, maybe. 89, 90. 88. 88. All right. So yeah, I, I remember. Was... So I, I got a plastic version of that. And I'm highly <laughs> jealous. You know, growing up, I think... our My dad is just buck knife guy. Inch and a half blade. Nothing like what we carry around three, four inch blades. But... So we I always had like a little fucking folding tube blader that I would carry around as a kid with a wood and fucking stab bugs and shit. I don't know what I would do with it, but I would have fucking killed for this. Yeah, no, it's, a, <laughs> it's a
1: it's a hilarious knife. Uh, yeah, i like I, I remember I had that and it's uh, yeah, it's been a good knife. I don't know if I've never used it for anything. I mean, I think if you carry the thing around, people are like easy Rambo. You're like, what do you mean?
2: Well, it says Rambo right on yeah. it. Yeah.
1: It's, yeah, easy. It says it on the deal. We, but, had, a, we had a
3: kid when I was in man, I was seventh or eighth grade. It brought a gun to school, right? He's going hunting. He Literally, is going hunting after school. So he brought this gun. It's like, he's got a gun in his locker. And he's like, well, I mean, I'm going hunting over it, so-and-so. And obviously, right? I don't know that he ever graduated high school. But uh, he got suspended for just like a couple days. And then that was that. It was, like, never a thing. Mm-hmm. But, man, brought a gun, brought a gun to school. And I'm like, Ugh. yeah. you nowadays, need a permit. Nowadays, you just.
2: Yeah, back then, you needed permission slip. Bring a gun to school.
1: Man, I, um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the country. I grew up in, you know, uh, suburbia, so. Yeah, if no some, fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody was bringing a gun to school, it's because somebody was fucking going to get fucking shot at or something.
4: So. We had a very outward-facing principal. So he would show just all the weapons he's collected in his principal career. And we had a kid, there was a drug dog going through the parking lot and smelt like a busted highlighter. So some kid was lined up to go hunting on Friday. They had uh, permission to break into his car, you know, I don't know, uh, because the highlighter and then they found a gun. So it was just a hunting rifle properly stored and he was ready to leave, and he just got the the fucking the book thrown at him. Was oh, because it was
2: on school property. Yeah, parked on school property. So, yeah. what's the
4: highlighter? So, just the the dog smelt it, and it was the it, they thought it, it was it drugs.
2: similar. It has a similar aroma profile. Highlighter, maybe,
4: do? but it was the the cause to open yeah. it up, and then they found a different reason, and then just yeah.
1: Got uh, it. that sounds like uh, cops use that stuff all the time, where like somebody gave him a tip,
4: and they're like broken highlighter. Mm. Uh, You know what? I don't know. It was in the... I mean, it was 2004. I don't quite remember it all, but just the highlighter. Mm -hmm. And then they found a different, like, a gun, and it was just like, he's gone.
2: Well, I didn't know you couldn't do that. I guess on school property. Was it a
4: handgun or a rifle? No, like a hunting rifle. And the plan Mm -hmm. to go with his dad that weekend and take off right from school. (sighs) It's just
1: strange times we live in.
2: You gotta know the rules, man. You gotta know... You just gotta know.
3: When, uh... (coughs) So I'm I'm thinking back as we're going through that. So, I grew up small, small farm town in in Illinois, and uh, very redneck. Right? People meet my wife, who's who's from Houston area, and uh, they're like, "Well, you're from Texas." I'm like, "Nope, I'm not." She is. Oh, okay. So she's like, when we first met, she's like, "Well, I'm from a small town." I'm like, "Oh yeah, we're another side of Houston." I'm like, "Oh okay." So she comes back to back to my town, she's like, oh, no, not... Uh, not this small. N- not like that small, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, it's, it's middle of nowhere. And uh, I'm trying to think as I'm like going through this, I don't ever remember, like, a, guns or drugs or anything. I mean, went to first grade through eighth grade with the same kids. I moved to Chicago for a little bit, but came back, and so first grade through eighth grade was all in one school, <laughs> all the same kids. And then the first time I saw, you know, even knew what... Hot was or anything else. We were working out in the fields, um, like rogan corn and soybeans, walking beans, and uh, some dudes were you know, ripping one hitter quitters uh, back, back in the field before you spent all day walking up and down these. I was like, "What's that?" I'm like, oh, you don't know what this is. It was you know kids from like the county, right? And so uh, yeah, I was probably dialed into some of that stuff a little later than you guys.
2: I, I think I was totally fucking ignorant to that shit because I was such. I was just fucking school and sports. It was programmed.
4: We had D.A.R.E., we had great game resistance education and training. We had D.A.R.E.,
2: didn't we? So I had to be a fucking, I had to know.
4: Yeah, I didn't. D.A.R.E. worked for me. I didn't do any
1: drugs. Nancy Reagan. You know? I mean, we've talked about uh, the defunding of physical education here in the United States because no longer was physical education a priority because Nancy Reagan had kids that were drug addicts, you know, Ronald Reagan's kids. And so that was what the problem that she looked at said this was, you know, plaguing America. And that was the defunding of physical education here in Texas and diverting money into the into the D.A.R.E. program. Declare a war on it. Yeah. Declare a war. It worked. Richard Nixon still clean. Yeah. But Richard get this Nixon man some declaring, coke. Claring, uh, <laughs> declaring or basically making the war on drugs. I mean, dude. Mm-hmm. And they went from just, you know, and as uh, another I'll, I'll reference, my dad again. But he made a point. He said before Richard Nixon did that, they were thinking of closing prisons in California. They were so underpopulated that they were closing prisons in California uh, because they didn't have people. Richard Nixon was, my dad always said, the best thing that ever happened to the judicial system and the prison system was Richard Nixon declaring the war on drugs. He's like, it it was as if uh, the people that were, you know, the private uh, groups that were, you know, basically building and funding and running prisons or whatever were like, we're dying here. Let's make uh, all these drug misdemeanors become felonies and like, create the war on drugs, and that is where we've gotten this huge explosion. And so that, like, that whole change, man... What's like, your
2: position?
3: I would be interested to see construction of prisons and landowners that owned those, and then... Donors. If were, yeah, if they were state-funded, right? Because at some point, right, they, most of the time they are, but you can get some of those that are kind of public-private. Um, I'd be interested to see all that.
4: Oh, yeah, no, it's... Uh, yeah, but, um, I mean, it's just pretty interesting. Here's a, a visual graph. 1971, yeah. it was officially announced, and per 100,000 population shot up 10, 5X, 5X in yeah. terms of male incarceration rates sentenced prisoners under the state and federal... Well, do you know what... So pi- it's, uh,
2: what, what you're looking at is a big hockey stick, right? Yeah, so, so you've got
3: services, right? You've got services provided to the prison. You've got...
1: Clothing, You've got yeah. a whole lot that gets and done like, doing it. Yeah, and, then, and then you have all the prison guards and you have all that. I mean, you know, there's <clears throat> I wish I could have met your dad
3: i uh, in all these stories. Right. I mean, just just the breadth of knowledge um, with those folks. And that's I think why it's so important to spend time right with folks that are not necessarily doing the stuff you're into now. But uh, it's one of the reasons right here in stories like that, that I have breakfast every Thursday with these guys down in Wimberley. These dudes are, you know, 70, 75 years old. They were in Vietnam, and they have just this historical view of development of the Wimberley area, right, the valley. Okay, hey, here's the way this looks, and I think if people spent a little more time with their elders, took some time, took them out to eat, and donated some of their time to these folks, that, that you would hear a little bit more of that, not necessarily rush to be in the, I'm the right, right, I'm right, and, and kind of see both sides of the coin, um, it's interesting those guys always have a different view when you ask them the question of something you sit down for a bit you're like what do you think of this might as well just grab a cup of coffee because they're not going to stop talking
1: yeah the uh the one thing which strikes me a little interesting about you know and i and i know this from uh uh you know we go to dinner on tuesday nights with my old neighbor who's 90 and uh it's pretty interesting like I I always have to forget that those guys lived in a different time because like on occasion he'll say things or like, you know, this and you hear it and you're like, like, yeah, like I'm just you you just kind of like, like let it pass a little bit. And I'm like, ah, he's, you know, so I was kind of like tends to say things a little off color and like, it's just kind of interesting, like his perception on things. And I try to like, and I was telling Kate about it. We were just kind of talking. I'm like, you got to remember, I mean, dude, those guys, like he, you got to remember he was like a dude in his twenties in the thirties. I mean, what, he was 90? So what he was born in, like, I mean, what's he? He was, like, 27, 1927. So he was in, the, like, the, the pre-'50s when he was in his 20s, and he was in his 30s. Like, a like completely different time here in Austin, Texas. I mean, just like, uh, you know, uh, my, neighbor's, uh, um, my neighbor's father, uh, same deal, about the same age. And what's interesting is those old guys are about the same age, and they both ran wrecking yards in the, in the 40s here in Austin. And so they've known each other for, like, 70 years. <laughs> And I asked him, and he had nothing but bad things to say about each other. <laughs> it's a, and uh, I just kind of laughed. And Kate's like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "One uh, old dude told the grudge, and like, you might have wronged me 70 years ago, but like, the way these dudes are, it's like, uh, you know, he screwed me in 1947 on something. I fucking remember it forever.
3: Oh, dude, last week, last week, this dude's getting ready to go in for a triple bypass. Everybody's like, "Oh, is it triple or is it quadruple?" Right now, <sighs> like, Jesus, sounds pretty serious. And they're like, you are just eating eggs, and uh, it's one guy. So. So basically, you, you pay one week, and then you may go 10 or 12 weeks, and so it just rotates, right? So if one person pays the whole bill, and it uh, <laughs> wasn't this guy's week, and he's like, no, I got the bill. And they're like, no, it's this other guy, right? And this other dude comes in on a walker, doesn't say anything to anybody. You treat him, you know, just like he's there. I mean, he's, he's there, right? But it's hard for him to kind of look up and talk to folks. And uh, so this dude's like, nope, I'm paying, Look, I'm going in for surgery. I'm not going to have any one of you sons of bitches say I wasn't paid in full. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's like, "Okay, yeah, hey, you're up." Yeah, makes sense. Uh, and he, you know, I think he just got split, cracked open yesterday. So,
1: you know, I, I, I joke with Parsley. That's why Parsley comes and trains with us. Doc Parsley comes and trains, trains with us at six in the morning. You know, I, uh, he didn't show today, so I had to call and do a, a, a proof of life on Wellness him. Well, this jet. Yeah, so when Percy doesn't show, I have to call him, and he's like, oh, "I overslept." I'm like, "Doc, I'm just making sure you're alive." Why didn't sleep? Dog? Why didn't he show up at the A15 crew?
2: Oh, that's been disbanded. What? Yeah,
3: that crew was so consistent. It was. It was. So there's only six a.m. training time now. There's
1: only six a.m. training. And only six a.m. So well, uh, well, Luke's got to run home, and uh, you know he's got a, he's got a young baby to look after. I brokered a deal with the wife. She handles all
2: baby shit, like baby stuff from 10 p.m till seven AM and then I'll come home, make her breakfast and do the baby stuff at that seven AM hour. Huh. So I get a full night's sleep. That's a good deal. Yeah. It's a good system. It's part of the system. 999. I'm waiting for that Venmo buddy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say what uh so what's Tex doing? Is he taking care of the intern? Making sure that his feet don't have uh I'm not
4: well, sure I'm, I'm failing him. clearly
1: <laughs> 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 Leadership is a tough thing, Chris.
2: Mm-hmm. Get down! You got to rub those scabs, those scabs off. Uh, uh, rub no. them out.
1: No, you don't. <laughs> well, well, well. You guys both seem to train barefoot, so I just wondered if you guys were over there like mingling toes.
2: Mm, no, mine are toe aren't.
1: mingling. The the single disease-free gentleman in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess. What do you think? I he's like I'm worth three and a half million dollars that the government knows about. You think I'm going to pop for a college or rock band? Dude,
3: we would get these guys. These these privates would come in from you know every corner of the United States, and and I was in uh, company command at the time, and I had this first sergeant who was in, um, he was in, uh, just a bunch of stuff over his time, right? Just he was just salty, right? Good morning. How do you know what kind of fucking day it is, right? <laughs> and uh, so, so this private comes in and they're like standing in formation and like Top sniffs this dude out. He's like, hey, uh, you need to come over here after this. Kind of look like you over there in turn. And uh, so this kid comes up and Top's like, when's the last time you showered? This kid like had no clue. He's like, oh, uh, he's like, you don't know? Uh, no, first sergeant, I don't know. Okay, when's when's the last time you washed your clothes? i don't know <laughs> he's like okay we don't have dirty fucks in our formation and <laughs> then he grabbed one of the one of the e fives or e sixes he's like your job today get him clean <laughs> and that was the dude's job for the day and he just like went in there they the washed all the sheets they showed him they showed him how to wash everything how to shower and uh, next day happy as can be right <laughs> so
2: let's use this as like we're 40 minutes in spanton give a little background we know you're from lincoln illinois if any listeners are paying attention and then we'll get into how you're so intimately aware of the inner workings of the u.s army
3: i feel like we could probably say this introduction together Uh, so from lincoln illinois joined the army uh, 2003 started flight school flew black hawk helicopters for seven years uh, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, as commander twice in Afghanistan, then went to the Congressional Fellowship. Uh, went to Washington, D.C., George Washington University, and then worked for a year on the Hill, uh, for, working for the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Went to the Pentagon as a legislative liaison for years, so working budget authorization between the House and the Senate, and then the Department of Defense and the Army in this case. Then I became an acquisition officer, and working the uh, business side of the army um, r and d for aviation at that point, and then became a career manager human resources officer um, working careers for five five to eight hundred officers at the time um, got out, knew we wanted to raise our family in austin, Texas, and uh, moved down here, joined the texas national Guard mm-hmm. Uh, VP of operations for a tech company, left there. We did some counter drug work for a while.
2: And then... Approaching the apex of your career choices.
3: Yeah, I was fortunate to uh, work for a few months with you gentlemen. Yes, sir. Um, And then since then I've started uh, Blackhawk Lending, a VA mortgage lending company.
2: Yeah. And it was, man, two, maybe... Well, it was right when we moved out here, right? Because it was on the podcast. You have been to uh, one of our seminars, podcast listener. Dave reached out to the team and was like, hey... I'll show you around if you need anything. Uh, I'm out in Austin, and then I think I took you up on it, or maybe you hit me or pinged me, and you're like, hey, heard you're thinking about Georgetown? Don't do it. Right? And then you kind of gave me some advice, and then... I forgot about that. Yeah, that led into, like, ultimately, you hit up McQuilkin because you had a contact at the Texas Capitol for a tour. And then that was where McQuilkin and I went and asked my wife to go tour the Capitol, and Small World ensued. I was a state champion with Spanton's cousin. <laughs> the only strong Spanton, Ken Spanton. Ouch! Wow! <laughs> Ouch! Ken Spanton's a strong dude. He's uh, stronger than uh, well, Dave.
1: Uh, <laughs> how's his I hairline? I, how's his hairline?
3: Similar. He's like the opposite of uh. me. He's over <laughs> he six foot. He can deadlift four hundred. Oh yeah, uh, he's over six foot. He's the Catholic in college, and then I think now he's he won some um, like
1: powerlifting, yeah, like national yeah. powerlifting title of some kind. Right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I
1: remember a day when you couldn't crack three fifteen. Recently, Recently, within a month. Yeah, you remember when we bloated? Like uh, we were doing some RDLs and some things, and you from could-
4: mid shin. Oh yeah, yeah. that's yeah. when I was deep into super compensation <laughs> on our our training program, John. I triphasic. I'm out,
1: I made oh, it. Oh, so now you're better. I got out. Well, you know, uh, Cal talks extensively about this uh, uh, tissue quality coming up from doing triphasic. And I don't really know what that means or how he's measuring that, but mm-hmm. I would imagine... So it's it's, a, it's
2: by feel, which, Dave, this is why we've brought you on the podcast. We need you to feel the tissues of John and on. Tex.
1: Hold on. Let me unzip.
2: Yes. Mostly high hamstring and adductor. It, that's the groin. Who has better tissue quality? Now, I've tried them both, and I can't differentiate because my hands are too big. We need tiny <laughs> hands. Man.
1: The, wow, uh, he's just shelling you over here. I thought we that's were
2: gonna okay. shell him. I,
1: I, I, well I, I figured we'd get in slowly, but hey, we're gonna shell a him. Bit. In.
3: Hey, that's okay. Um I learned <laughs> I learned years ago, just bide your time. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't doesn't necessarily bother me. I'd have to care uh-huh. if you were really kind of shelling me. No. Um, so No, I mean I'm game is where I'm going, with that. <laughs> just let it's me know when zip them
2: boys. <laughs> uh, no, for listeners, Dave Span six months with us helped with 2017 symposium
3: yeah 2017 helped with that.
2: 2018, yeah, 2018 and then on. and then just came coincidentally, us with the, yeah, uh, as yeah, six we, months full
1: time. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. our deal with uh, the 18th Airborne Corps and also with the Texas National Guard that we, you know, we're trying to go in there and under you know General Lacamera's direction, trying to figure out how we can influence the 18th Airborne Corps and increase you know lethality and change culture and put in a uh, you know physical training system that allows people to get better and all these other things, and then we just hit some roadblocks when people realized that they were going to have to change. Well, the the timing was great, right? You, mm-hmm. When you and I first
3: talked about it, hey, it's going to be it's a long road, uh, but it's needed. And so I think what you guys were working on kind of in the background, moving that direction anyway, then with that change in the ACFT, that really is yeah. a game changer. And kind of set the foundation for people to really start buying in. And then seeing your talk out at the War College and people come up and talk to you afterwards, I mean, that really was... was Critical for those folks to understand, uh, but they weren't really focused on leading formations that they no, just would know how the himself. fuck they were going to pass. And then now, right now, with the launch of, of the program um, on the commercial market, I think people are really starting to buy into it and they're getting worried, right? I think you, I don't know if you guys saw that article the yeah. other day um, about who is concerned uh, about passing the, the ACFT. Was well, it well like let's f- get
1: background on that in case people eight, aren't. 85% of uh, female testees did not pass. I think is what the, what the uh,
2: so rewind was, even more because listeners probably aren't aware.
1: Oh, uh, about
2: the same time we were going in working with 18th Airborne well, Corps, who is kind of been like more progressive thinkers yeah. in terms of changing the way. Yeah, well, the Airborne Corps is,
1: core is um, you know, it's been kind of this, uh, you know, lead from the front kind of a deal, ahead of the curve, ahead yeah, of the curve, and you know, they realized that uh, you know the present paradigm that they were using uh, was not cutting it in terms of you know increasing you know durability, resilience, and lethality, and all these other key metrics, and that the amount of people that were on reports, which is injuries, unable to train, and were in non-deployable status, would that be considered like injury reserve? Yeah, like an like IR, IR list. Yeah, so they were on IR. Was uh, I mean, roughly? I think it was like, I want to say like ten to fifteen percent of uh, the 18th Airborne Corps was in a you know non-deployable status. Was it, it that?
4: Was at some point, I'd like to you to explain like the the profile and how the army works in terms of training PT. Uh, if it fits in now or or later at some point, like how long is a, a individual on profile or is, just. Oh, yeah. Even prior to that,
2: the nuts and bolts of PT, right? Yeah.
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, as well. So it's changed, right?
3: So my my knowledge is for a snapshot in time, yeah. And So what we used to do, right? So, for instance, I never cracked a deadlift until 2014, 2015, right? And I was researching on my own. I, it's not like I avoided it. Mm-hmm. Legitimately, my entire life was never asked or was it included in a training program.
2: It was just um, run.
3: Yeah, it was run, push up sit-ups, right, do what you can. And then on the aviation side... You know, With the deployment cycle at the time, you'd you deploy, you'd come back, you deploy, and your timing could be such that you never really got into a good training system. And so um, before right the Global Warrant Air, I guess now we've got folks their entire career in that, um, it was 6 a.m. PT, come in, push up sit-ups. The big thing was a deck of cards, right? You basically two upper body, two lower body, and then go for a run. You do that basically four or five days a week. One day you do kind of a long road march, load up 40, 50 pounds, and, and go went from running that to then walking it and then as you went to uh, Afghanistan and then kind of that consistent deployment cycle through Iraq you were just trying not to get broke right and to your point about a profile um, when you get injured uh, whether it's in PT or in training or even even you know in in uh, non-training related incident you basically go to the army doc if you're going to miss training in PT you go to the doc doc. Looks at you. Okay, hey, you have shoulder shoulder injury, right? Ankle. Whatever. Yeah, you're on profile. No PT for three weeks, right? Just kind of Kentucky windage on what that's that. And PT is uh, not physical like physical
2: training. therapy; it's physical training. Yeah. So just for any
3: listeners, basically, don't do that. And then once we had so many injuries, then people would just not be able to get into physical therapy, or the physical therapy was at inconvenient times. So and then they would miss training. So then you had folks that had to decide whether going to get on profile, missing other training then coming in in between leaves or just making PT less physical, right? Okay, hey, today we're just going to do PT on your own. Um, and so you'd have a day or two a week of that. You'd have then folks, depending on their job title, right, or their job, you'd kind of scale that up and down. The infantry guys, I was 101st guy operationally for six years. Um, those dudes, but, I mean, those dudes were just hard, right? They would just consistently uh, beat their bodies, right? And and they broke a lot of folks, They, you know, admittedly by the Army. Um, through the years of that intensity and duration, and you guys have seen that and can highlight more about why. Uh, But that's really kind of the way it went. And then you would deploy, and you wouldn't do PT, so you didn't have to really uh, do a PT test at all. Um, You would obviously PT in between training days, but for us, right on the aviation side, um, Iraq was a little different, we had a gym, it was a little more of a hard stand, it was an air base. Okay, you can go PT when you're not flying. Afghanistan was much different in the fact that we did have those things, but the operational tempo was such that you know, you'd fly four or five days and then one day off. Okay, go get some PT in and then come back and then you're flying the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've kind of got that choice there. I know I did notice a difference in Afghanistan. I consistently worked out, but that was kind of a byproduct of where I was located, and I didn't have near the neck and back issues when I came out of Iraq. Needed to fix some stuff, so I went to a chiropractor. Okay, kind of got everything lined up, and then coming out of Afghanistan, just doing a ton of pull ups running a bit, but mostly just pull-ups and kind of bent over rows and bench press, um, really kind of kept that upper body more erect in, in the uh, helicopter and noticed less of an impact. Mm-hmm. So I think that answers that question.
2: Yeah, and okay. I guess for, for folks who just maybe aren't familiar with how that works, and then in, within that Army you have those forward-facing dudes and then you have all the support folks who are, I mean, Dave, correct me, like glorified office jobs.
3: Yeah, right, relatively
2: right. sedentary.
3: Right, fighting war takes, mm-hmm. takes a team, right? And you have that guy that's out there with the rifle doing the PT, but in order for him to get those bullets, right, that's got to be requisition. and yeah. order from somewhere, it's got to be inventory. And so you have this team you got of people and, and behind and you got a the motor rifle. pool,
1: So you've got guys that can drive the trucks and guys that fix those trucks when that's they break it. them. And then-
2: but all of those people, in that, even though they're not on that front line, are responsible for participating in PT.
3: Absolutely. Right. Right. So that's up to the company commander, typically, or the platoon Mm -hmm. leader um, to drive that. And so you have that varying scale, right? You have folks that have zero training (laughs) beyond what the Army has done to lead that. And then you have now you've seen kind of a resurgence in the last five, 10 years, especially from academy folks, um, or even on the enlisted side, guys that have been in CrossFit gyms or gone through the methodology. I mean, you've seen a fair amount of people come through there where that it is just it is changing, but you're still stacking that running on top of basically yes. everything right yeah. because we even now with the change have a two mile run and so people just think kind of longer and harder so you know over the years you would have a colonel that would come in battalion commander or even kind of a platoon sergeant and, and the goal was to just break everybody off right As your new new hard lieutenant or new hard sergeant's like i'm gonna break my guys and you would take them on a long run and you would okay you take off fast that gets the first half mile. You're getting uh, 50% of the people out, right? Okay, then you get two miles. Everybody's still hanging. You get to four miles. People a little bit further off, and then you've got some left in the tank. So you get out to that five miles and beyond. And once you get past that, then it's really kind of moving. And you get, you know, kind of the goal for folks was you want to finish with around uh, four or five, half a dozen people, um, and then have a, kind of a conversation. Basically, tell everybody yeah. that you know fell out, like you suck. Yeah. Um, but I think that's changing a little bit because it's not just that duration and time. So because people didn't want to fall out of the old man and the commander's run, they would run a lot, right? And never once did I ever see those dudes come have a pull-up contest. Right. You just didn't do it. It was always focused on the run for whatever reason.
2: Mm-hmm. And you compound that with, like, maybe a little bit of gear you're carrying and then not op- the foot, footwear is not optimal, um, foot health is shitty. You, you already have people who have very little training history, potentially, coming in now, at least in, from our understanding of our assessment, a, a couple years ago. So you just have these poor move, poor motor patterns, lack of stability, and you're packing fucking volume on these people in the form of running. And then you have them do just
1: push ups and sit ups. Like, dude, you're, <laughs> it's just a rest. Do you remember the dude that we had in the 18th Airborne seminar with the, with mashed the potato feet? with the feet? Texas, uh, twin foot. Don't you (laughs) dare. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Like I have never in my life. I have never in my life seen somebody's feet look this bad. And when I looked at the dude, I was like, how painful. I I was like, and he was like, ah, no. And he was like, I'm like, Hey man, like we're in the trust tree. And he's like, I can't even walk. My feet hurt so bad that it's Mm -hmm. like, it, 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 it takes over my entire life. His feet, like, n- not only had they the arps, arches collapsed, but they had calcified mm-hmm. yeah. so much that they had, like... Uh, Ladies like, and
2: gentlemen, here's what I want you to imagine. Get yourself a pair of white tube socks. Boil some white potatoes mash those potatoes and fill the socks with potatoes.
1: And that's what those fucking feet like. Well, I was like. going to say, if you boil the potatoes and you put the potatoes in the sock and then you take the sock and, and you they, smash oh, yeah, it on better. the ground like yeah. 20 times yeah, yeah that- and then they go flat and like it's exploding out the sides, and that's what his feet look yeah. like. It was not he pretty- had to wear, because I asked him this, and I'm like, uh, those shoes are too big. He's like, yeah, I have to go up three sizes because they're the only shoes that are wide enough mm-hmm. for me to fit my toes in. So he was like stuffing socks in the top of the shows because his feet were like, had doubled in width because of the calcification, that's a testament to that guy's, you know, mental fortitude. Oh, right? Uh, Still harder there. The harder than coffee
3: na- uh, coffin nails. That's it, man. Show up. Hey, go to the go to this power athlete course. I
1: know your feet are probably fucked. Well, he didn't say gonna, anything. He was just suffering. There. Yeah, and then I like see it. I'm like, take your shoes off. And what Uncle
2: like, Dave used to say: If you're going to be dumb, you better be hard, or yeah, something. Uncle like that. Dave: If you're going to be <laughs> dumb,
1: you better be hard, or both. Uh, but, uh, well, as as a uh, Dave was always funny. He's like, you know, there's two types of SEALs. There's guys that are pretty cerebral, pretty smart, that, like, you know, are in, a, you know, pretty forward thinking. And then there's other dudes that are just like, how heavy is that pack? I'll march it up that mountain. And you need a whole <laughs> bunch of dudes that'll march up the mountain with a heavy pack, and not ask any questions. Yeah. So if you're going to be dumb, you better be hard. That but was uh, awesome.
2: I, I guess. And that's as we got into this early on, you know, we we were just communicating as if we were talking to other coaches. With some of the leadership, and that's where it was just coincidental. Man, Dave like was to train with us and fill him in a little bit. He's like, you can't talk to those guys like that. And we're like, you know, it's, it's it's a whole new vernacular. It's a whole new thought process because we're used to this like rigidity, or we aren't used to the rigidity in thought and the silo siloed facts. We're think like, we're fluid and adaptable and in, in our, or that's what we we're expecting out of the conversation. But it's just not how the military worked.
3: Yeah, you can easily get to a point where unintentionally ruining your credibility with half the room right mm-hmm. and that's at the end of the day obviously you guys yeah. have the credibility but just by saying things in kind of that wrong tone and not understanding the room just for lack of knowledge mm-hmm. and experience that uh fortunately we didn't do that right right the, Obviously, you guys were willing to ask, and I think we spent a lot of 4 a.m. meeting times, which I still do, by the way. Oh, yeah? I, I'm up at 4.30 every day. Yeah, don't, don't, you have to make, uh,
1: don't you have to make your wife coffee and rub her feet for 30 minutes?
3: She did say. She's like, your one thing is coffee. I'm like, perfect. So when I fuck anything up, I'm like, you said my one
2: thing was coffee. <laughs> 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 uh, That's
1: good.
2: Uh, it's awesome. So you get your hustle in from 4.30 to 6? Uh, hey, I did take a, yeah.
1: I did take a big uh, uh scooper full of that strong coffee uh-huh. um he said you can mix it with coffee so i put it with like a triple espresso oh, God, or four score quad espresso uh-huh. and i put that stuff in there he's like oh but i didn't really notice any difference i found
4: it guys you, oh,
2: what what have you been looking for is this like are we still on air fox
4: well no we did a few oh. <laughs> Airwolf. oh What's... Airwolf. no firefox no uh, there's there they are yeah
1: nice potato feed you see this how it's all come out the side right there That's all calcification on We we did
4: a few of them. I didn't remember exactly which. Yeah. The thing is, you know he's been to
3: a doc. You know he's been to a PT. But those guys don't. And and they don't, right? I mean, my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. Broke ankle a few times, all right? You know, I'm in Pathfinder school, step in a hole. Okay, get through it. Go to the doc, and they're like, I think it was 2007. Hospitals are overwhelmed with, you know, war fighters, right? Mm -hmm. These guys are missing limbs. They're going to appointments. He's like, uh... You know, you can get an appointment at the hospital. It's probably going to take a few months. I mean, you take somebody's seat that's, you know, Needs missing a it, leg, yeah. right? And I'm like, well, fuck, I'm not going to do that. All right, just get through it, right, and then deploy. So you're deployed, you know, three or four months later. You're like, well, I don't want to be on profile the whole time here. So suffer through it. Get kind of find your way. And uh, it just compounds. It just compounds. And that's yeah. why they had to change, right? They changed the standards because they knew that we were we were breaking people. I think General Frost said it was a billion-dollar yeah, problem. yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, on that front as well, in terms of the, and it, this isn't a problem just in the Army. This also can kind of go to the private side is when we were doing that one clinic uh, just down the road, and we had the PT gal there who's like, oh, deadlifts are bad for you, right? Because oh, okay. there is a group uh, working with, that that we're buddies with, I mean,
1: I guess the tea, we were with the T, t- group. Yeah, so we were up at uh, uh, Fort Hood. And they um, yeah,
2: they're prepping these guys to lift weights for the ACFT, which is the new standard of fitness testing, which is still like it's not perfect, but I think it's better than
1: It's a move in the right direction. Yeah. You know, they realized that instead of, you know, that they Run. were going to almost have to have the tail wag the dog at this point, mm-hmm. so they had to implement these standards, put something in because they had to make a drastic change and there's really no good way to do it to rip off the band-aid. And I think just basically just kind of changing the PT standards and putting this in and now, you know, and then getting equipment. I mean, but the logistical things that they just figured, hey, man, the tail's going to wag the dog. So just fucking do it. Let's do it. And I mean, in in fairness, right, you get to see the process
3: uh, on the inside uh, and it it takes a while, right? And it yeah. takes a while because of oversight. And so when you think about the commander's direction, right, the commander being combatant commanders or in this case, probably for administrative stuff, chief staff of the army. Hey, boom, I know we got a problem. We need to fix it. And so, somewhere within that million-person chain of command, just in the army, yeah, right, it's down to the lowest guy, and you're like, okay, <laughs> I now, just, okay, my PT test has changed. What the fuck you want me to do now, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, it, I mean, I get it. Why it takes a while and it's hard, but it's definitely, I think, a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And the faster we can implement that, the faster we can get folks back through the methodology to change that mindset at that kind of rubber meets the road right company. Command and less at the yeah. at the squad leader side for the um, for the lower enlisted on the rifle on the rifle teams. The faster we can get those guys implemented, then we can police up all the other cats and dogs. Right, and why I get it. it's not going to be perfect, but
2: and the, but the beautiful thing is like the solution is so so simple, you know, in the sense that you're looking you're working with extremely untrained individuals, very little training history with regards to barbell and sprinting and performance based training that we offer. So. If you just take 5% of like literally any sound strength and conditioning principles and apply them, you're going to see significant changes in reduction in injury. And it's basically don't do so much volume and the same shit over and over again. Um, Supplement that with not running and not sit-ups and not push-ups.
1: Well, the interesting thing is we saw two P, two different types of injury sets. We saw the overuse running, which looked like foot and ankle and shit and, and, and this it. issue. But then we saw this kind of like, and those were what I, what I classified uh, in, in my talk was with, uh, you know, the chronic overuse and repetitive mm-hmm. movements. Some maximal volume, right. But then what happened was because these guys were so deconditioned in terms of strength and like because of the, the you know, the beat down of volume, we found all these weird acute injuries that would happen because... Uh, they just weren 't physically strong in the stable, right way strong right yeah, like in, and the biggest one we saw was like lifting something heavy with a rotation. Um, I, I have to lift something heavy and I have to rotate it to put it and move it somewhere, and then they invariably always ended up with a back or a hip. Uh, and then we saw, you know, some form of like reaching with a shoulder, and like a lot of these came from the fact that they just weren't doing some basic barbell strength training, and like it's just like, hey, if we can do just a little bit of trunk stuff, if we can just do a dead bug three days a week, yeah, isometric, uh, yeah, right? just, just some isometric contractions. And what they what what they were messing is that they didn't realize that isometric contractions develop stability within the within a uh, um, within the environment, so. Um, And then we also saw like a ton of overuse in the upper back and the shoulder from like uh, more pack and like the idea, well, these guys need to be stronger. Well, they're not getting stronger from carrying the load, so we have to do some things to balance it out that looks like some H poles or some vertical poles. And so you're almost developing a strength and conditioning program to combat the issues that we know were going to happen. So when we developed uh, the programming that we implemented with the 18th Airborne, it was like, okay, let's look at the demands and where these guys are getting injured and let's put a, a program together that allows them to strengthen so that we can almost, uh, you know, cut off at the pass. We can see the foreshadowing of injury, and then let's create a training program to cut off at the pass. And, um, you know, what was cool was not only did we have two years of 18th Airborne, but we also had, you know, the 10 years that I worked with the guys from Naval Special Warfare as really foundational information for the two programs we launched with the, you know, Holistic Athlete Movement Readiness Program, the Hammer, and then also the uh, ACFT-centric uh, armor program. Mm -hmm. So, um, we had the very, very unique, uh, opportunity to work hands on and actually test these training programs with the groups that we were going in and putting them through standard strength conditioning templates or, um, uh, training programs and seminars. And what was amazing was getting up and giving these talks. And I'd always, you guys hear me be like, you guys ever heard this stuff before? And they're just like, we've never heard any of this stuff. You know, we've never heard about, you know, proper positions and stacking and, you know, this and muted hip. And we went through all these different positions or, you know, the idea that you got to drive your big toe on the ground and you know create arches and just all this, you know, top to bottom training so that we can strengthen the system because we know where it's going to fail. It's kind of like, uh, you know, you're designing a, um, you know, a room full of servers and, you know, it's going to get hot. So let's. Put in some cooling, let's put in some fans ahead of time because we know it's like like they're building rooms for servers and then they're like, oh, everything's hot. Well, like we didn't foresee let it. Let that bitch burn. Yeah, like in that, that's what was interesting in their training program is that people did not have a function. And if you can create a function of like, I want to reduce injury by heading off at the pass and fixing the weakness that we foresee that we've seen as universal to every individual came in with the same issues, mm-hmm. then we can, uh, you know, be put together an intelligent strength conditioning program. So, Um, We just had, we we were very, very fortunate to have that real world because I don't know if anybody else has had that real world application like
2: Mm -hmm. we have. And help those dudes out.
1: Yeah, I don't think so. Not at the, not blending the special operations side to,
3: you know, the general population side. Special operations guys have been doing this for years, right? I mean, I remember taking congressional delegations to, uh, third Special Forces Group, Fifth Special Forces Group,
1: and they've got Sornex rigs in there yeah. seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Um, different, different locations. Dude, uh, we we train those guys. I mean, those guys are, are, you know, been longtime followers of not only of CrossFit Football, of Power Athlete, of Field Strong, of Hammer. I mean, the, uh, the eclectic group of clandestine individuals that have subscribed to our programs for the last decade is unbelievable. I just, you know, I remember launching CrossFit Football, and I think I, I told Luke the story about us getting hacked, And uh the somehow the website got hacked, it was shut down, and I get this like phone call and I pick up and it's like, Hey, this is so and so. Um, we need to know what today's workout is. And I'm like, What? And they're like, We'll cross the footballs down. And I'm like, Yeah, we got hacked, there's some issues. And the guy's like, Well, yeah, well we need to know what the workout is. And I'm like, How first of all, how'd you get this number? And the guy's like, I'm in a basement in Langley, Virginia. You don't think I have access to your fucking number? And I was like, Okay, here's the workout and then uh he's like, Anything I can help? I'm like, Can you get our website unhacked? He's like I'll check on it. And literally the website was back up in like 20 minutes. So I put him in touch with uh, our designer, uh, with those guys. And like they called them and they were like, hey, do this, this, and this. And they like 20 minutes later, the website was back up. And they're like, who was those guys? I'm like, some dudes in Langley, Virginia. We needed to know what the CrossFit football workout is. You know, we got, we, we've gotten flags. I mean, we've gotten in, you know stuff sent from us from all over the world from these, you know, fire bases in the middle of nowhere. That's like, man, the only thing that we've, uh, you know, kept us going was following this god-awful fucking training program that you wrote and following like the comment section and this and it's uh i think if it wasn't for the those guys reaching out and for all that i would have fucking burned this thing to the ground years ago
3: yeah it matters right that's that's the thing is when you get out there and you see what these folks need to get out there and fight the war right whether it's a guy humping an ammo can the guy parachuting in to fix a
1: know generator and then uh, that to this day is um whenever somebody asked me like hey the training program and just uh not cut dave off but i i remember one of the guys at our seminar i was like so what do you do and the guy's like i'm a generator mechanic and i was like oh okay so what do you do he's like well you know those big fucking batteries that shoot the missiles he's like they're run by these generators and uh, when they go down they drop me in with my tools and a gun and on the front line and i basically have to go in and fix those things And I'm like, so wait a minute, you're dropped in the middle of the desert, you parachute in and you have to go in with all your fucking tools, uh, which, you know, could be like, you know, 50, 100 pounds worth of like tools. You drop them in and then the guy has to get into a generator in the middle of like sand and heat and all this and try to do try to diagnose generator without getting shot. And He's like, yeah, pretty much. I'm like, that's That's the single most difficult job in the history of the world. Like not only you have to generate, like uh, diagnose electrical problems and fix it, because I mean these are you know circuits in the desert and heat, which you know as as anybody knows, the two things that circuits don't like is heat and sand, and uh, and then they the guys flying in to do this, and I'm like you know so whenever people talk about support staff, I'm like. What about the generator mechanic? That dude's a fucking. Like, He's a fob though too. So there, I mean, you know, there yeah. are a fair amount of folks that aren't leaving the fob. But but, but can you imagine he's like got to jump out of the heli- or uh, out of the plane, or they land the helicopter, and the dude has his full fucking tool kit, like tools are like heavy, and then he gets to you know, and they uh, dude to that you guy, you think he's
2: got Ryobi's or what's he what's he sporting? Uh, I think they, I don't know, what do they it use? It is the army.
3: Ooh, they're unbranded. I'll tell you that. Uh, Are they on okay.
2: green? <laughs> I don't know. They've had the
3: shit inventoried out of them. That dude, oh yeah, <laughs>
1: that dude's not missing a single screw. Oh yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet you they probably buy those dudes some decent tools because they can't have something break. So deployed,
3: deployed overseas, you can, you've got kind of this government impact card. You, you can buy what you need, and so you can. Get more name brand stuff at that time. Just commercial off the shelf. Uh, back home, stateside, uh, you know, depends on depends on the unit, depends on a lot Fisher of different Price, things. But No, bro, I, I hope it's Snap On or Metco. There's but, that uh, story of Patton back back in the World War II where he's uh, yelling right there, Third Infantry. There, everything's going off, and Patton comes up to this guy who's up on a on a telephone pole, basically fixing the wire, right? Uh, get the communications back up. He's like, "Hey, what are you doing up there?" He's like, "I'm fixing the wire." He's like. Don't you think that's a little unhealthy right now? <laughs> the guy's like, no. He's like, well, you probably should get down. He's like, doesn't this make you nervous? He's like, there's bombs going off. There's artillery. None of that makes me nervous, sir, but you sure as hell do. Ben's <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, good. I'll get out of here. <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: So it's you know these guys go through training to go do that stuff, right? And you just kind of desensitize them to that. I um, mean, you hope, right? You hope that as, as somebody that spent years training that when it happens and you're, you know, you're called in, John, you've got the story, you're called in and you're ready. Um, and so whether that's through physical training or through job preparation, right? there's a balance between both. And so at the end of the day, physical training is great, but it is really
1: just to enhance your job performance, right? Well, and that dude was pretty stout and pretty strong. And he was like, man, the only way I'd survive if I didn't, if, uh, there's no way I would have survived if I didn't lift weights. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other guy, and I can't remember his name, uh, he had six fingers and six toes on uh, on both hands. So he had these weird scars <laughs> on the side of his hands, and so I was like helping him get set up in the deadlift. I'm like, what are those scars? He's like, well, that's where they removed the six finger. And I was like, are you kidding? He's like, no, I had six fingers on both hands and six toes. I'm like, no way. So he takes his shows off, sure enough, had a scar. And I'm like, that's pretty weird. He's like, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure my mom and dad were brother and sister. <laughs> and I like kind of looked at him and was <laughs> like... That's pretty funny. And he's like, well, I wasn't really That's kidding. That's not a joke, yeah, yeah, he's like, that wasn't kidding. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not joking. Yeah, he's like, I'm like, okay, sure, let's go on. And uh, that dude was like, I love lifting weights. I'm like, I, I love you lifting weights, too. Let's rock and roll. So I, 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 the funny part about that is we got just this really random amount of MOS, or MS, uh, M, MOSs. Uh, MOS's. Uh, so I would always walk over and, like, those guys didn't know who the fuck I was. You know, they were like, can call me, sir. I'm like, first of all, don't call me, sir. I work for a living. And then the other one was, uh, I'm like, so where are you guys from? What do you do? Like, what's your position? You know. And I went through, and it was really interesting to see, like the uh, just obscure jobs that people do to, to to keep the cog working. And you know, like not everybody was a door kicker, even though we had a lot of those guys. But just seeing like the support crew and the people that had some really interesting jobs. Patriots, right? They volunteered. That's a nice thing.
3: Is that when you're standing in that room of people, they may not want to be there. They were just told to go to training. But at the end of the day, they. They signed up. They said, I'm going to go serve for whether it's, you know, a couple years or a career. Um, somewhere deep down, right, there's this hero complex that that person signed up with that has. And so when somebody shows up and, you know, having seen it and seen seen how humble you guys were in the room... Uh, it's nice because it's not somebody trying to benefit themselves, right? You guys show up and you're like, look, I mean, do what you want with this. It's, it's not a graded event here. It's whatever you want to take out of this. And so it was interesting to see how in the course of a two-day course, when the lights lit up for people, right, you'd see them, ah, I'm not into this. And they're like, oh, well, okay, maybe you get out what you put in here. And uh, to a T, I think everybody walked away with something because you've got a former NFL athlete who has this level of training, that they haven't been exposed to, right? That shows up and says, why are you here? Hey, what can I do? Right? What well, can
1: I do for you? The one guy told me he joined, and I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, no, I joined up. I figured I better join before I got drafted. And I looked at him, and I was like, I don't think they have a draft anymore. And he was like, well, they did, right? I was like, carry on, private. Oh, yeah, yeah this dude, one. You, get, you get all <laughs> kinds like, of Like, there was a dude, he was like, he's like, I was like, nobody told you there wasn't a draft, huh? Okay. I I thought he was basically His recruiter's probably Under investigation Yeah
3: (laughs) (laughs) He's the guy that's gonna Get the PT (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We had uh, We had this This dude He was a private He was a rifleman At the time But I remember uh, My platoon sergeant Was like all right, You know Get out Pen and paper Write my number down And like halfway through it PK's like I'll just change his name He's like Smith Let me see your fucking paper grabs this guy's like little notepad he's like what's my fucking number i just told you basically he went from like think of it like one line to then his like next number so it was like nine five seven it was like nine on one line five was like 45 degree tilted in like five lines and then seven was like the rest of the paper there's literally no more room on this paper and he's like how the fuck are you gonna write the last four numbers of my phone number when you've taken up the whole paper he's like I don't know, Sergeant. <laughs> it's like, I was just going
1: to ask someone. So he's a hey, as somebody guy. else got it. I'll just ask him. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's good. No, but it was, uh, it was an enlightening experience for us. And, uh, it was really just, uh, realizing that, um, you know, we owe it to the military to offer them the best that we can. And regardless of whether or not uh, the powers that be decided that, like, you know, this information was the best to give them. Uh, that's why we just said, hey, you know what, let's launch it commercially. And let's not wait on somebody to make a decision or stroke a pen in this and just, hey, yeah. if this information needs to get out there, then, you know, I think we have the opportunity to provide the best training out there we can for the guys that are in you know harm's way.
2: Yeah. And now we can we have all that whole playbook to keep giving to the guys who reach out to us right whether it's out here or uh, we got a couple groups out here that are we're going to be working with or even across the country so
3: i remember uh, i remember again it's years ago but uh you know it's nice to see this training go to folks and i'm envisioning what it looks like in the gym and i know we walked in a couple gyms where you kind of see more pockets right doing training uh, that fall in line with what we believe is accurate and uh, i I remember standing in this gym and Salerno right right against the border there in Afghanistan and and you you had regular army and you had um, some seals and then you had some uh, green berets over in corners so everybody you got to see kind of everybody's training style right regular army guys were all on the treadmill you know doing some pull-ups kind of banging some weights getting out of their seals are doing uh, whatever the fuck they're doing right I don't know (laughs) high-fiving and uh, you know just getting big and beefy and then green berets were just kind of standing there look like they're not doing anything eh, but jacked right and uh be interested to see if you put those same people in the room now right in the same gym um, if they're training together or what those styles would look like because back then it was it was completely different but maybe they're following the
1: holistic plan now Mm. well I, i think um you know for all the you know for all the memes and all the humor that crossfit's brought to the world uh, the one thing that they've done very well is they have changed the paradigm in terms of like fitness and training. For ge- for general well, people, Yeah, for right? general people. I mean, you know, the the fact that, uh, you know, general people now are doing basic barbell training, which didn't exist 10 years ago. I mean, I, I do. I've told you guys have heard me tell the story numerous times that I had to drive 30 minutes to find a gym that had bar- bumper plates. And now it's like, you know, you go into Gold's Gym and they have Gold Fit and, You know, they're over there doing just really bad version of CrossFit, Um, you know, I mean, and it's just, you know, Orange Theory and these other groups, which is like, um, you know, if you neutered CrossFit and then, uh, you know, tie or cut it in half, it's kind of the Orange Theory thing. So I think like it's really interesting that, um, you know, in a way, I mean, I hate to say it, but Glassman kind of won, won the war on fitness. You know, and uh, that was a kind of an interesting observation when you see these groups and everybody getting into this idea of doing some form of you know full body movements, lifting weights, stressing the machine, and this and you know uh, that was pretty pretty eye opening. And then now seeing that like you know here's the U S military making this move. I mean, the Marines have always been ahead on this, but I mean, they, you know, barbell culture has always been very prevalent with the Marines, uh, just be, from the physical nature of like their PT tests. They have to do pull ups. You throw pull-ups into the test and now all of a sudden you can't be a fat ass anymore and you got to be able to do some weights i mean i remember in ni- in 2007 2008 going out to camp pendleton when they built their first crossfit gym uh with all the equipment from old crossfit hq uh that they donated down there they took it down truckloads and they built that gym and we trained at that gym in uh um uh in, at camp pendleton and just seeing that like hey this is like the new thing and you know the the seals had been early adopters of that through andy stump and those guys and uh, just pretty fascinating now seeing 10 years where it's kind of gone to that like no longer is going in and just doing some fucking organized fuck around this is like that's not okay anymore that people know better and whether or not that's from the rise of the internet or whatever it is or you know amazing podcasts like we're on right now people uh know better than what they did 10 years ago and i think it's been it's been phenomenal (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as I look at the ACFT, right, and
3: the training, and if you look at some MOSs and different jobs, right, let's let's choose aviation, obviously. That's my background. Well, we have warrant officers in the Army, and man, there's nothing like a good education from a warrant officer who's, you know, 45 years old, right, probably been through a couple surgeries, backs all fucked up from years of flying. You show up at 23, 24 years old, platoon leader and company commander by the time you're about 30. And uh, these warrant officers are like, hey, sir you want me to be good at push up setups ups and running, or you want me to be a really good fucking pilot, right? And you're like, well, okay, go be a good pilot. And that was because they could get away with a PT test, push up setups, ups run, and now I'm interested to see the impact on the Warrant Officer Corps and those warfighters, um, not because they were slacking, but because they could get the job done, right? They mm-hmm. could do the minimums, get back, and then, you know, go fly. Um, and so as you start to look at those support skills and MOSs, and then you look at things like aviation, which is kind of right on the line, um, what their training looks like and what they're doing to kind of get through the minimum. Because a minimum I don't think is going to be easy for most folks. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly if you're doing the minimum of push up, sit-ups, and run. And so what's the impact going to be there? I don't know, right? I hope it's not overtraining to then <laughs> go take this test. I don't think people are going to get injured in the test, and that's kind of where you see some of the articles going. I think they're
1: going to get injured in the volume of training they do leading up to that test. Well, what they need is they need a comprehensive Program that allows them to load this in a good manner so that you're not just going from zero to a fucking hero, like you have a a progression and what we found in you know all the programs that we. Uh, that we write here at Power Athlete, you know, whether it be like, you know, starting with something that looks like bedrock. So then you use a basic linear progression to drive strength adaptation and get people familiar with barbell movements, you know, five basic ones. And then once they kind of run their road on bedrock, then they have the ability to kind of uh, look and say, hey, as that road diverges, can I do something like Field Strong, which is a more advanced athletic program. Something that looks like Jack Street, which is a hypertrophy driven program, because the idea that a larger cross-sectional size of a muscle should be able to drive more weight. And then, you know, or you want to do something that's, uh, you know, a little bit mixed modal and a little bit more high intensity like a Johnny Wad. I mean, and then, you know, now that we have the hammer program, which is kind of blends all those programs and mixes it up with, uh, you know, some really interesting kind of media or short, medium, long kind of, you know, running and kind of looking at the volume in such a way as like, how do I load this volume in a smart way? And then how do I give you enough time to allow you to get strong and kind of, you know, blend the two? And it was good that we had two years to test this and see the best way to kind of make it work know what to say to that because i agree
2: so do you think but there, the new acft has based off of mos like mm-hmm. a, a variable pass rate and that is interesting but maybe maybe is it possible that well fuck i don't know i'm trying to think if the army was smart enough to realize that that caliber of soldier where it's just like hey let me do my job like the population that they're kind of rotating out Right. And there's more of an influx of donkeys. Or is that not, is that not realistic? Don't have a position either way. No, it's just (laughs) tough because,
3: uh, by, you know, by and large it's good people, right? There's, Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody kind of ever sets into something like this with, with anything other than great intentions. Right. Mm -hmm. But then where you get into the execution of that is through the leadership and then time, right? It just takes time. Yeah to execute these things at the level with which you want. And so, you know, I think in theory it makes sense, right? right? Why do we need to train the guys we were just talking about at the level of an infantryman getting ready to go fight the war, right? I don't, I don't need that guy. He probably didn't sign up in the base level of strength training um, that he needed to, mm-hmm. and so
4: let's not injure him, right? So, so I've got updated. So the fitness test scores have changed since our last deep dive. And they've now have three levels, so they have a minimum score for soldiers with heavy physical demands, significant physical demands, and moderate physical demands. So before it was just the score, and now they're adding in these levels, different for your responsibilities. Agnostic and job. of uh, gender, and yes. then is it agnostic
3: of age as well? I believe so. It's been it's been
2: changing. Sorry. Stay up with that. but that's yeah. kind of based off of their test, the testing and results. You'd imagine, right? So they, it's been. Did they have two years they wanted to test this thing, or?
3: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> regardless of the program, mm-hmm. um, the first thing is not going to be accurate, right? Just, mm-hmm. just getting it out. And what I learned there, you know, through my time is, if you want a program to get through the Pentagon, especially through Capitol Hill for funding, it's just launch in one direction. You're gonna make trade-offs along the way. Get it kind of directionally correct. Make the trade-offs and then, you know, the kind of the minimum standard and then you can adjust from there. And so I think you'll continue to see that evolve as injury rates creep up and i think it's it's a good thing that they're willing to kind of continue to change
1: this thing as they mm-hmm. get more people totally. through well, it well originally they were kind of rigid it was and they they wanted to kind of black done and white. No, one level no, they wanted like hey it's either you know and, and i think uh, that goes back to the conversation i had with the camera talking about you know with the inclusion of women in, as uh, you know into warfare into like combat um, you know heavy roles you know putting them in infantry they needed a, a a like kind of a pass or fail like either make the bar or you don't and uh you know by including you know women in that they had to change the pt test to kind of be like hey can you you know are you strong enough to drag that dude carry out of carry drag you know, yeah. carry drag and be able to pull a guy out of this in a you know stressful situation so i think um you know the idea of like just having it black and white uh, i think it was maybe good within theory but now you're seeing
4: this kind of thing evolve into you know different levels so this was announced october 1st 2019 so really fresh and new so they that full year initial implementation from october 18 to now and now we are uh oh no that was the practice run now we're in the initial implementation full-blown implementation october 1st 2020 oh for right. the army ACFT. Well, that's the new calendar year but go ahead Early fiscal year
2: Oh, even global, like John. This goes back to, I guess, to dare, right? Because another challenge that the army faces. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, is mm. just a a lower supplement ed- education. <laughs> yeah, like well, is a lower pass rate on just basic training, right? So the the fresh new cadets coming in don't have the a high enough level of training to even pass the basic basic, which goes back to PE. Yeah. And fucking rolling out stick and balls, and people just walk fucking laps instead of actually do something in PE or PE is defunded and discontinued altogether in grade school, junior yeah. high school, and high school. So that it's just like a, a compounding. What's up? You good? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's I just compounding issue like and then so those kids will tend to be the f- ones who explore an option in the military i mean our kids in school now go ahead
1: John. my well i was going to you know reference the talk i did for the war college which goes back to like i mean i forgot it was like in the in the 40s when the very first it was after world war ii i, I want to say in world war one it was like uh of the i forgot how like i'd have to look but they basically failed two hundred thousand people um weren't fit enough to go into service. And so that was kind of the idea where these guys were failing and in the initial kind of, uh, you know, putting them into the into the fight. But after World War II uh, is when really they started talking about a PT test. And I just remember the quote was, uh, training for war is training for sport. Like there was this like parallel between like, if we need stronger, healthier, uh, you know, better war fighters, it it's going to come at the hands of organized sports that, like, hey, if you're a baseball, football player, we want those guys as our warfighters because we know they're going to be fit enough to do the job. And so, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, you know, and this goes back to John F. Kennedy's fit-to-serve deal and, um, you know, and then Lyndon Johnson, you know, signed the uh, presidential physical fitness test. The idea was that there was a base level of fitness that needed to happen for you to be able to go in and make sure that we're fit enough to fight the wars of the future. And uh, I always remember the... Uh, talk I had with General Camera where he said, you know, uh, he referenced that exact thing, you know, are we fit enough, are we strong enough to fight the wars of the future? Mm-hmm. And like, it was like night and day. I mean, shocker quoting John F. Kennedy, but, uh, you know, these guys are all, you know, within that maddest profile of like the warrior monk, very well read. Um, so I think that idea, but, you know, uh, like we said, like the defunding of physical education here in the state of Texas and around the country and this and there and this, I mean, we're starting to see now we've reaped what we've sowed. Mm-hmm.
4: What are your kids... Go ahead, Chris. No, Just a quick cool thing. World War II physical fitness test. I couldn't find World War One, but... Because World they War didn't II. have it World War I. Okay. Uh, indoor pull-ups, squat jumps, push-ups, sit-ups, indoor shuttle run, 60-second squat thrust. No numbers. Yeah. This is just a... Yeah, so the joke that we made and what I would said at
1: the War College was, if we just went back to the original PT test from the <laughs> 40s, because what they have is that was the PT test, and then they changed it in 1982 because they needed... Uh, a PT test that was uh, uh, more inclusive and could be done anywhere. And so uh, at the time, jogging was, uh, oh, was a big jay. deal. Yep. Yeah. Ninth- introduced
4: 1980. APFT introduced in 1980. Two minutes of push ups, two yep. minutes of sit ups, and two mile run. Yep. So, and that, that kind of came on the heels
1: of, uh, I think there was like a big, like, Running, kind of, uh, you know, Forrest Gump explosion here in the United States. I think uh, what happened was, an American won, was it in the 70s? If you look it up, an American won the marathon at the Olympics in the 70s, and that's what really got the resurgence and everybody started jogging. And I, I laugh about it because I remember my parents fucking jogging and i remember as a kid like going like jogging Man, uh, no like i remember i still laugh about this That's i'm like you guys you remember you fucking we would go jogging and she's like oh yeah your dad like loved to go jogging i'm like it's fucking awful well there was that and then there was nike right at the same time and when you read
3: shoe dog it goes through that timeline you i mean you know if you draw these lines who knows if it's a part of it but when you have a national marketing campaign to run into something of running right people are going to go
4: that direction is it
1: 1976
4: 72 72? in munich frank Shorter, but then in seventy six he got the silver. Yep. So competitive, and I, I did remember a story of how the like the marathon training prescription that's applied was Frank Shorter, and he had another America. I'd have to dig for it. Another American marathon runner that it was. They were training partners, and their coach, and then the prescription that we see for like Joe Schmo that wants to Google yeah, the peaking. It is Frank Shorter and his his training partners' program. So they pulled from the best to, like, generalize and give marathon training, and that's why so many people get fucked up training for a marathon is because they're doing, like, a 70s Olympic-caliber athlete marathon training and then just fucking themselves up, and it's like a badge of honor to get <laughs> just, going, just going pre-Fontaine.
1: And then you also have to remember there was pre and that whole deal. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, it's just, uh, like, it's, uh, there, there was a lot of things um, happening at that time, and sadly... We had pumping iron going on at that same time, yeah. And instead, we got into jogging and Jimmy and Carter, son of easy, I'm just <laughs> dude. Dave's still the presidency, man. He's still, still a presidency. Uh, Dave's a big fan of a peanut par- farmer from Georgia. <laughs> you're you're going to fight me on Jimmy Carter was a terrible president. I'm saying history doesn't know yet. Ah, uh, history has judged Jimmy Carter as a <laughs> failure. Not personally. Well, people no. like him. Well, they do. But this is a different time.
3: So would you put Jimmy Carter as a tier 1 or tier
1: 2 or tier 3 person? Well, um I don't know him personally, but I'm just saying that we've we have an extremely so uh the public has a short memory, but history does not, and history is how you're re- remembered by those that write the books. Well, there's that was that TR had the quote uh
3: nothing in what is it? No man uh no man whose name you remember didn't led a life of ease or something, right? And uh, yeah, I would say that history is probably going to prove out. I think we know where it's heading, but I'm interested to see. Yeah.
1: Maybe he had the right idea for the... Well, At the time, I mean, you know, we can always say that, like, you know, people make the best decision they can with the information they have at that moment, but history becomes the judge for that.
3: So what do you think of the war in Iraq, then?
1: Um, I think that... The problem that we run into in Iraq and I think the problem that we run into in the Middle East is it is uh, you're looking at a culture and a state of world that's been at war for 3000 years and that to really govern and to keep peace, you need a tyrant. And I think Saddam Hussein was the tyrant that we needed to keep peace in that part of the world. So I think going in and taking him out, um, I think, uh, you know, you can say that, you know, World Trade Center bombing out, al- you know, uh, Al Qaeda comes in and then, you know, they're going to harbor him in Afghan or in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we go through all we've done is gone in and destabilize that place to where the point where there is no leaving. Um, You know, you saw the whole deal where, you know, Trump wants to pull people out and let Turkey come through and deal with the Kurds, which is crazy because the Kurds have been our biggest allies. (laughs) Like those were like we're we're talking about the Like those are our dudes who have been the biggest fighters against ISIS and like uh, the uh, Islamic extremists. Like those are like those are our allies. And now we're going to leave those dudes out sitting. I'm like, this is just bad policy. And that wasn't an expensive deal. All we were doing was there to keep the peace like by pulling out, it's creating war. So I uh, like. I think what happens is is that in these parts, because I mean, when the Sunnis and the uh, and the Kurds and all those guys started battling, Saddam Hussein would go in there and like mustard gas and kill like a hundred thousand and like calm those people down. Like he was he was a tyrant, and like the um, like the you know if you look at like you know like um you know he had like the prima nocto thing where he would go take like the the brides and would brand them. I mean, just like the barbaric shit that that guy did. But then you're like is that the type of person you need to actually keep peace i mean uh so the problem is is that everybody wants to use their lens so we have people in this country that are like well that think that like the lens that we use here in austin texas in this time mm-hmm. yeah right this is how everybody is and then when they see the outrage and you're like well this is how their culture has worked it's like uh um my like i'll just give you an example um my daughters, like, ride horses, and they love horses, and I tried to explain it to them that horse is actually a pretty good meal in some parts of the world. People eat horses. And they were, like, hysterical, the thought that people would kill and eat horses. And why would they do that? I'm like, well, you have a perception of, like, these horses and these animals as your friends, and you love them. People view them as, like, property and work, and if the horse gets old, they eat them, and or they you know this is how they feed their family. And I'm like, so you have to realize that, like, you can't use your perception of right and wrong for situations that you've never been in, and you don't know what those people have gone through and all go whole deal. So whenever I look at, like, the Sudan was saying, was he a bad dude? Yeah, but is he uh, is he the lesser of other evils? Was he able to keep stability and whatnot? And then you look at George Bush, and you're like, you know, was uh, the, you know, the assassination on his father, was that related to this? And you go through all these different kind of nooks and crannies and, you know, the World Trade Center bombing, which was, you know, the most unbelievable thing, like, I still remember, like, the effects of that, and we just had it go past, but, like, that catalyst, and, like, I always, uh, I saw a dude put out a quote, he goes, I wish, uh, we could have the America, um, that was, uh, that I saw September 12th, 2001, like, can we go back to that America, where, like, people generally wanted to help each other, and everybody was, like, flying flags, and, like, Never in a life has has an, has an event polarized and brought out the, like, the most terrible event brought out the best in, in the people that were survivors. Like, people I just remember driving on the road, people were generally more friendly. People were, like, waving. Like, everybody had a flag, dude. Like it Everybody's, was like, like, in Texas. It, 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 it was it was unbelievable. And, like, the guy, like, the, when the guy said that, he's like, I wish we could go back to September 12, 2001. Can we be that America again? I was like, fuck, dude. That is so true. But um, the history, and then you see, like, you know, we go into Afghanistan, I mean, Uh, like we put ourselves in a position where there really is no exit strategy and if we leave these countries, the, the, you know, the hornet's nest that it's created just creates a vacuum and we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we saw what's happened with, you know, the rise in this and it's just you know i mean because if you think about uh how know, is it, how has your view
3: changed over the time though right in in 2002 you probably had a different view 2004 Well, right? has it
1: evolved well i you know i think um you know uh after 911 uh people were fucking looking for blood like hey you know what we were attacked this is the worst attack on you know us soil uh you know, since ever. I mean, like you know, since we were a country. I mean, Revolutionary War. You go take a look. I mean, Pearl Harbor. You know, I mean, look look at how po- Pearl Harbor polarized and pulled us into World War II when we decided we weren't going to get into it. Which was, you know, if you think about, it, if the Japanese don't come bomb us into Pearl Harbor, we don't get we get into World War II later. And Hitler would have taken England, which means he would have owned all of Europe, and then he would have come at like so. It was it was almost like. Like uh the Germans were like, dude, don't bar- you know, don't get the Americans into this and then but once that event happened, I mean the American war front can continue- change and we go over and we get into that fight and then the Russians come in. But if you think about um after nine eleven there was this feeling that like, hey, we gotta go out for blood and like you know, the Patriot Act, which was also the largest uh grab. Oh, I think that was 06. Uh the um, remember the largest grab of power from the american people and the basically the dismantling of the bill of rights and the constitution was the patriot act and people were fucking like patriot take act it. october 2001 yeah i was gonna say yeah oh one uh it was two years after nine uh, eleven. okay or i'm sorry it was the same year as nine eleven. uh they declared the patriot act if you go back like that's where all this shit started like and now all of a sudden it was okay to spy on americans and like the idea of the first amendment and this and privacy and all that you know what? We have to. The war on terror is such that but we. But did have you to feel des- that way in '01 with the Patriots? Hundred percent, I did. Okay. Oh, I, I, I was like, so wait a minute. Like, um, I, I've always felt that, uh, you know, for those that are willing to give up their rights out of the promise of security, have no fucking, have no business having the rights.
3: Yeah, I think mine, mine, my view has evolved over the years, right? So, so in '01, I'm in college. Um, my my older brother jumped in in October '01, right? So. Ranger battalion, due to the time, uh, jumps in. So, so I wasn't even paying attention to that stuff. Um, only thing I was doing was, you know, thinking about him, and then like, okay, I'm getting ready to go, right? Like, hey, this is where the war is at. Great, finally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're gonna, ready. We're not going to shovel shit in Louisiana, right? And uh, so, okay, uh, then then Iraq hits in '03, and so my brother's now deployed two or three times at that point, and then my uncle is in Iraq getting ready to push in. And so I wasn't, like, admittedly, I wasn't paying attention to any of that. I hadn't even thought about it. I was just kind of task and purpose, right? Hey, what is in front of my face, and what am I getting ready to go do? Um, until, until I deployed finally in 05, um, two-hour by the time you get through training. And so that was my first kind of indication uh, that, that maybe I needed to step back and think a little bit about what we're doing here. And it took months of me being in country to even kind of wrap my head around anything beyond task and purpose. And then I still, I walked out of there and I was like, okay, it's an away game, right? This is going to be a home game or an away game. And I felt like both invasions were still justified. And, and, you know, you can talk about the the policies behind all those things, but at the time I still felt like they were both justified. not that I don't now, um, but I certainly have more questions now about it. And then especially right after after you get through bin Laden, you're like, okay, well, what was what was the point, right? And you guys hear me talk about all the time. Like, what are we trying to accomplish right yeah. back to that Powell Doctrine, right? Well, what are but we here for?
1: But we've also always, uh, you know, history will say that wars of occupation are transfers of wealth which is a very real statement that, you know, wars of occupation are about transferring the wealth of the American people to private industry because you're going to need people in those situations. I mean, Mm -hmm. the uh, largest, you know, bill that we pay in this country is, you know, for this war that's gone on for two decades. And the problem is, is that we don't have a viable solution for an exit strategy, which to me, uh, you can't go declare war. You got to do this unless one you're going to go and win. And you have an exit strategy, like like the the day one, I'd be like, okay, you want to invade? Okay, what's our metric for success? How do we know that we've won? And how do we get out once we've won? So if we go in and we destabilize. What's our pro, what's our deal? I don't think we had a um, a concrete plan on one how to exit and two what our metrics for success was. Yeah, we didn't right, and and whether that was intentional or not, you know, you saw General Powell step down, and then you saw
3: you know, before that, right, he's talking to the UN and and is giving, now we know, flawed information, at least publicly flawed information on why we did what we did. But at the end of the day, right, our job is to project power for the American people and, and create safety in the United States. And I still would argue that by going to both of those locations, we... Not only have delayed the amount of time of attack on American soil, but maybe prevented it sure. um, for a host number of years and so what 's that worth? gosh darn man that 's hard to say because when you can tie the dollar amount to it that 's one thing. but when you tie american America's sons and sure. daughters to that, you know those folks died to protect what we have here for at least the last eighteen years sure um, so that 's where i 'm conflicted right do I, Can I have an answer on it? <sighs> I I know
0: that
1: my answer is uninformed to the level I would like it on whether it was justified or not. Well, the problem is is that we don't have access to the information. Like, this is kind of where I would... uh, This is so... uh, My wife thinks I'm insane when I tell her this. Um, I would want to be President of the United States for one reason, just to have access to this much information. I couldn't... Like, I, I swear to God, like, Trump lost me where, like, he sits in his house and watches Fox News and tweets. I would be like... Why? Think about all the information that you could like absorb and things. I'd be like, I would want to know like the most uh, interesting details of everything. I would want to know the history of this. Like I would just be like, like, do you remember in the movie? do Do you guys remember Big with Tom Hanks? Where he calls his uh, yes. uh, calls his secretary. He's like, "Hey, can you uh, get the uh, Giants Super Bowl, but cut of all the commercials and this, and then send all the stuff in?" And they like bring it all in. They get to watch. That's what I do. I'd be like, "Give me the uncut version. I want to know. Bring in the smartest people. I want to know the advisors. I want to know exactly how this whole thing worked. I want to know like, like let's break all these parts down and like let me absorb all of this information and see like, and then you bring in really really smart people." And you listen to all of these guys, like, like I mean, to, to have access to all of that, to me, means like, why the fuck are you tweeting? So what are your thoughts on lobbyists with that? Um, uh, the one thing I learned about my brief time in D.C. with lobbyists is, uh, you know, they have uh, an agenda. They have something that they're lobbying for. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, that's the way... DC has always kind of worked that there's always going to be special interests, there's always going to be lobbyists, there's always going to be people that are courting it. I think the problem with DC is the fact that you have people like, um, you know, let's use Nancy Pelosi camping out there for 40 years. Yeah. Um, so now there becomes this like, this uh, multi-generation historical power where now companies that like, you know, uh, she probably did business with, uh, oh, I dealt with your grandfather so my my dad made a good point he said you know um and i always remember because he was in that politics scene at the time and he made the joke one time that uh nancy pelosi and her husband didn't have, didn't have two nickels to rub together until she got that seat and now she's worth half a billion dollars so my whole thing is uh you know and i and i was laughing the other day when somebody was like you know going off about trump's tax returns i'm like okay so you have a private guy who is a billionaire and you want his tax returns why don't we go get the tax returns of the people that were dirt-ass poor before they got into Congress, and now they're millionaires and, and super wealthy. So, like, to me, that's a weird thing that you go into this public servant deal and, like, you know, you vote in all these protections that you can't get in trouble for insider trading in this, and her husband gets into all these real estate deals and builds a, a real estate portfolio over 40 years based off of information with that. So, so t- for me... Um, the biggest problem that I see is not the lobbyists, it's the fact that you have career politicians, so what you need is term limits, because if the turnover was faster, then you wouldn't have the lobbyists having this historical history with different candidates where they know they can go here and here. They just need faster turnover.
3: Yeah, I, so it's pretty insightful, right? I, my view of it is, um, I think it comes, out of, it comes back even before that, is the ability um, for earmarks. When you when you take away earmarks, you take away leverage, and but
1: you also take away clarity. But but wasn't that Newt Gingrich? Didn't didn't that whole thing get together where like you know like cross uh, cross aisle talking like before they used to work together, and then like the Republicans and Newt Gingrich said, "Fuck that, we're not doing that."
3: Well, Gingrich Gingrich took power uh, because he was speaking directly to the American people through um, through. his podium speeches where there was an empty Congress, right? No one's in there, and he convinced people through fiery speech to then elect Republicans to change the dynamic. But most recently, the the Republicans, when they were in power, took earmarks away. And so what you do is you take away clarity, right? Because now you don't have leverage for your district and my district for you to kind of vote with what we want, but you also take away the ability to see who is tied to what legislation, right? And so these budgetary legislative proposals are still going to go up, but now you're kind of working it in, and so clarity goes away. So, you know, for the lobbyist piece, I think it's I think it's actually an important piece of DC because they have to be federally registered. You can't yeah. have somebody in there that's not. So you can tie the lobbyists, you can tie where their donations go, you can tie who is actually paying that lobbyist, right? So you get a little bit of clarity, and whether it's extremely clear, no, but hey, it's as good as you're probably going to get without it. And so, but these guys are typically folks that have been in industry for years, right? And so we talk about the, the kind of the sage advice from your dad and from other folks, right? Imagine if somebody had come to your dad or somebody in their 60s and, and had worked in government for 30 to 40 years. He had the policy side and he was willing to take some money to help advance that policy side. I think it's important part of educating elected officials on the historical importance of those things. But the flip side of that is that I think you have to have earmarks to see what the politicians are doing, and yeah. then you can kind of tie them to a body of work. Sure. And then that becomes part of the election in every, in every election, Dude, right? Because without said, it, you
1: can't—unseating an well, incumbent is extremely difficult. Well, I mean, it's like in the—I um, mean, geez, uh, uh, who's our guy out in California that we had? Um, Dana Rohrabacher. Rohrabacher, yeah. Right? He was there, what, 30-some 30, 30 years? And uh, never once sponsored a bill. Never did anything in terms of legislation. Fought the Soviets. <laughs> so, Dana Rohrbacher, let me talk uh, about dude, this guy. What a piece of
3: shit. So, Brian, this dude, I won't get into his name, but this dude was an intern in our office. <laughs> okay, and then he went to work for Rohrabacher, and I'll, I'll always remember this, because I got to meet um, Congressman Rohrabacher. I met him, too. He was a real fucking piece of work. Either way, this intern is in our office, so picture me, right? I'm, I'm, in, uh, I'm in a white shirt, suspenders, dress shoes, and I'm standing there with a coffee mug it's like 8 a.m this dude uh meets my wife the day before we were going to some embassy dinner and he's like apparently thought my wife was good looking right he's like uh sir you yeah, i mean with all due respect your wife is is really pretty i was like no thanks brian appreciate that and then he kept going right like kept going and this is the back office. About her yeah so then he's like i mean how, yeah, she's gorgeous right like how, how how'd you do that right so now I'm standing there. Now the office is listening. And I'm standing there. Man, I mean, I've been on Capitol Hill like three or four months. You know, what am I going to do? Shut this guy down. And what's tolerated? So then he keeps going. He's like, how'd you do it? Teach me the ways, right?
1: Well, you're going to need a 10-inch limp dick.
3: So. Well, I, I looked at him. I was like, well, Brian, I'm a fucking combat helicopter pilot. You can start there. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, uh, just wilted, right? He's a good kid. I mean, he's super, way smarter than I was at the time. But, uh, couple months later he would, he moved offices shockingly right yeah. but then he went to work for congressman Rohrbacher. he's like hey you want to come i was like yeah. hey i want to see his photos from from the 80s and the soviets yeah sure i do
1: oh yeah no he uh you know uh, yeah he he was our congressman and uh i remember like being like how is it like uh, this guy like so whenever it would come up on the vote i'd always kind of do just a little you know cursory you know research and be like hey uh, the, you know what's it? never sponsored a bill right. never did anything and uh, basically camped out there for a number of years, and just fucking just got along. Just got along. Get along. Get along. And, get along. and you know what? Like, um, what we don't need in our pol- in our political landscape is fucking donkeys, fucking uh, um, uh, you know, uh, frogs just sitting on on lily pads. And, uh, you know, Dan Crenshaw is a great example. I mean, I really appreciated him coming in and like, you know, the impact he's made and being like, hey, you know, the problem with it is that there's so much old guard within this political landscape that like anybody that comes in that has any idea is just immediately beaten down. And we got to do something to, to get faster turnover. I mean, you know, you can't have somebody who's been here for 40 fucking years in D.C. I mean, it just it just doesn't work like that. And I, I, our founding fathers spoke against career politicians. You know that the idea of uh, you know leading the country in political was something that you do out of your civic duty, and then you go home after your job is done. You know that's George Washington when they said, "Hey, you should be president forever," and he's like, "No, no, no. You know, I, I did my job. Let somebody else come in and lead. You can't have the same thing. We don't want a king." So I think the problem uh, that we run into with D.C. is that you know you have people with just really long memories and people that have donated in here and this and it's just it's because you know for 30 for for 3 and 4 generations these these individuals have sat on these seats And they fucking need to go. We need to have some form of uh, um, term limits in place for these guys. They just can't have fucking career politicians. That's where I think this thing's broken.
3: Yeah, I don't know that term limits are the answer. I think that it's important for the electorate to be informed, right? You talked about knowing Dana Rohrabacher because you you spent the time. I mean, how many people have gone to (coughs) do what we did, right, and meet their congressman, walk the halls, right? Hey, I want to talk to you. You are my congressman. Let's do it.
1: Oh, and and I've Googled our guy and uh, checked to see what he does, and he's another one. He just kind of hangs the fuck out. And uh, basically the biggest piece of uh, news about him is his boot collection. So if I can Google you, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. If I can, (laughs) if I Google our congressman and the first thing that comes up talks about your extensive boot collection, I'm a little disappointed in you as my congressman.
2: But at what point is like, what's the difference between sitting on a lily pad and protecting the status quo?
3: Is it the same, or is? I mean, I, th- I think I think he's saying that it's the same.
2: John is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So well, then, if you represent a uh, a group of voters who just don't want this shit to change, wouldn't you do nothing?
3: Yeah. So I see your point there, right? It, should you get in and should you pass a bunch of laws, right? I would say, Or, you or know, just I'm support not a legislation. Fan. Right. Support legislation. Take a stand. Right. I'm the guy advocating for folks to take a stand. Um, but do what is necessary for your district, right? But mm-hmm. that also comes with having enough time in the office to meet people, invest in those relationships, to get done what you needed for your district, right? When you go down south of uh, south of San Antonio, uh, Congressman Sylvester Reyes was in Congress at the time. Man, you can't go anywhere down there without somebody, you know, hey, Congressman Reyes got assist, Congressman Reyes got assist, and then he got outed uh, because somebody new came in and they, had, what have they done for their district, right? So when I'm looking at a candidate. And who I'm going to support? I agree. When you've been there too long, right? You need to know there is an expiration date. But I don't know that it needs to be mandated. But I'm also looking at somebody that's not necessarily going to be a bomb thrower, mm-hmm. right? I don't need somebody to come in, pick the congressman um, that that is just going to burn all the bridges, right, and never get anything done because that's not doing anything for your district. And you can look at that. More importantly, at the state level as opposed to the federal level for your own state house district. And determine what they're going to do, right? We have somebody in in my district, which is not you alls that came in, doesn't necessarily represent the district just demographically, and then has a view that's the sixth most liberal in Texas, where I would say our district clearly looking at it is not, right? No, so
1: I don't need them to Hays be— You're Hayes County, man. That's very, very uh, conservative. Very, I mean, it's not
3: this— B cave, very nice. Very up here. When I came here and I managed past so many people were we looking live, at me and my work truck out there. Uh, they were like, we live down in on the, me.
1: What are you talking about? We're salt of the earth. We're uh you know we're, uh, you know, uh, American cotton out here. We're not like that. Those lacy guys living over there in those developments. We're like <laughs> <The>, Lacey. <laughs> Look, those guys drive power athlete work trucks. Okay. Uh-huh. I don't know how
3: many trucks we have out here. Mine's the only one that's been dinged up uh, out here. That's uh-huh. not true. I've dinged up oh, my truck. Okay, many times. Yeah, they Apparently
4: the intern backed into my truck like three weeks ago and didn't say anything. Yeah, just, what it? the fuck intern? Really? Does that mean? Yes. What? Uh, I knew
1: where did you dent the truck? Oh, you yeah, dented your the, truck. He's not oh, going to uh, dent yeah, no. no, you're, you're no, not, not going to dent that not not much. That. <laughs> i not the damage.
4: I got to spray paint a small centimeter-sized mark on the bumper. <laughs> and uh, if you want to replace it, I'm pretty sure we can replace that whole truck. Yeah.
3: I just, so we're going to have to add that to the intern interview checklist now. What would you do if? Yeah. Right? I not, didn't know you even had to add that. Not can you drive a manual transmission anymore, but
1: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. what would you do if you backed uh, into can, somebody? Can the intern drive a manual transmission? You can either. not even. I don't think so. Dude, oh, I didn't, two, I didn't interview you at in the That's person two that I, interns in a row oh, that can't sure. drive a manual.
4: Three. Oh, no, I can drive. That's no, a he, burn. That's an intern burn. joke, DJ's. Yeah, oh. do you remember that's a blue truck? <laughs> Dude, do you remember we were an old power
1: athlete in DJ's blue truck? I'm like, just do another lap. And Texas just mm. moseying around in DJ's. It was, it
2: was mostly the intern joke. Because <laughs> you're the, you're the oh, burn. intern. You get it? Ah, you guys. Never mind. Burn. Sorry
4: about that. Uh, in, in Hayes, it's interesting when, uh, what's his name? Beto. There was a big push because Texas State University is in Hayes County, and people are getting the students to register in Hayes yeah. so they could vote and push. I thought that was interesting. Um, the gentleman, one of the guys that we heard speak that to, you took us to, he was saying that. I, I found that very interesting. Uh, was that George Bush's uh, nephew? Oh, George P?
3: Yeah. We heard him. Yeah. Um, yeah, about a year ago, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: it's interesting when you. I look just got hit up on, uh, to re up on my math pack. Oh. What are you thinking? I don't know. I um, who's our guy at the map pack? Who sent me that? Uh, probably Fritz. Uh, no, character. no. Who is the kid that we went on DC? Oh, yeah, Kenny. Kenny with the real tight shoes. Kenny. Yeah, so he's Kenny. A good shot, dude. Yeah, Kenny shot me an email. I uh, I'll respond back to him. I, I told him I'm you know um, I'm probably not going to get into it unless I can you know get into a leadership role and basically have his job because I think he's not a terrible <laughs> job. So I'm going to write a whole dissertation on on the things that he hasn't accomplished and how I think you know it's time for a change. You know, a kid like him, probably. ROI yeah. is what's going to be <laughs> driven on. Where's my ROI? Yeah, I mean, I got talked to Fritz. I just don't think that you know you're map pack material. I just don't think you're of the proper cloth. Ouch! Ouch! I don't know. I no, just it's joking. No, it's a
3: it's a good organization, right? So, so what we're talking about is Maverick Pack, which is you know I fall in the conservative camp, young conservatives. Um, basically focused on members across um, the United States. So political organization, but it's the only one where you actually get to vote, right, democratically where your money goes. So basically, if you want the election to be kind of like an NCAA bracket, you want to contribute to this organization if you're on the conservative mind so that you know the elections across the nation are, are interesting. You know that this candidate who you nominated, whether you're looking in, Know South Dakota, or New York, or wherever this candidate that you chose and you voted for got some of your dollars combined with others, and now you're looking at not just your race on election night, you're looking at you know 20 races across the country, um, and so that's that's why I got involved with it. I didn't want to be just a bystander on the sidelines.
1: No, no and, and uh, you know it's easy to give to certain candidates, but uh, you know get into a you know political action committee and be able to actually give dollars and have those dollars be influential um you know was a smart way to go at it and also dial into some local politics
3: that's it it's really it's kind of made a group of friends here locally for me where you get a chance to get out and meet these folks that you otherwise wouldn't right uh, the two there's two state reps that are running three state reps down in, in my district and uh, i've met with one of them we're going to have in fact all of them out to our street so you guys know my neighbors right we all kind of run fairly fairly tight together and we're basically going to host uh, meet the candidate for for all three state reps that are running on our on the republican ticket over there so hey we're not advocating for the incumbents or uh no they're all challengers so we have a democrat state rep um, these are all in uh, republican side primaries so we need to have it before the primary so probably gotcha. in the next 60 days and i think it's important for people to get out and meet these folks and so make your own decision but let's create the opportunity for people to get involved right most of the time, you just kind of look at the ballot, and you're like, oh, I maybe fall here. A lot of folks haven't really done their research, so we're going to do that um, down by us, which without the involvement in the federal stuff, wouldn't have created the relationships it has locally to at least introduce others in the community to that. Um, so we'll see where it
2: goes, but I don't know. Sorry, are you leading the charge I'll, on that? I'll be there.
3: Uh, yeah, I'm going to host, we're going to host one candidate at our house, and we've got a federal one we're hosting in our house um, a couple months as well, and then... Yeah, you can be on that invite. You guys can certainly come uh, if you want, but uh, then we'll do, I think our neighbor's going to host one and somebody else, so it's not like we're mm-hmm. advocating for one and kind of going that way.
2: That's interesting. Why? Yeah. I just, it never been a part of my so how do you culture, vote neighborhood, My my folks rely on the news. Right? Okay. But like we chain never. Letters, uh,
1: chain, chain, chain letters, a lot of forward chain letters. <laughs> That's how they get all their information. Uh, no, so, but
2: like growing up, my, my folks were just never as involved as that. They never took the initiative to uh, meet Congress, their congressmen and women, or state representatives, local repre- Just They were not involved. I mean, I think my mom was very involved at the neighborhood level, mm-hmm. right? So we just knew our neighborhood. But other than that, as kids, I, I just wasn't a fucking thing in our house.
3: Yeah, um, I wasn't involved until I joined the Army, right, surprisingly as much, um, even though we're fairly agnostic. But uh, through the fellowship, they send you to GW. So we had a congressman teaching one of our classes, right? So you get to know him in in a whole different light where he's talking about running for Congress and then explaining how they rule. And then the chairman wanted... um, a personal staff member on the floor with him and chairman were allowed to do that at the time. And so um this other guy, a buddy of mine, would go down with with the chairman and during vote series and kind of ran a lot of that stuff. The chairman was in his seventies at the time. And so we helped him out meet with other members. Hey, go talk to this guy, bring him over here. I want to talk to him. Okay. Um and then so when he wasn't able to do it, I was able to step in and do that as well. And so you got to be on the floor of the House of Representatives during vote series. Then you run into the congressman that's teaching your class. I'm like, what the hell are you doing down here? It's like, I don't know. They just asked me to come mm-hmm. down here. Yeah. Uh, but the chairman would like to meet you, and he was the chairman. So you, you kind of introduce those folks, and then you know, you're know, you immersed in it in D.C. You can't live in D.C. and not be immersed in it. Um, so we spent three years doing it where you, you make friends, right? You're not intentionally meeting these folks, but then they kind of move up. And then as you stay in contact with folks, and kind of like I met you guys, like, oh, well, yeah, you're into mm-hmm. this, and then getting stuff staffed through the Pentagon and Capitol Hill for budget approvals requires you to go meet with these folks. And now you see them again, right? So being there for, for one year on the Hill, then a year to two years in the Pentagon, then you're back there every quarter, every year, mm-hmm. you just get a little more comfortable doing than You necessarily would be. Yeah. Um,
2: and I'm just, I don't know, not naturally well. tooled up. I feel like, and that might be a cop out. I'm not sure to like dig into that stuff. I've, I mean, I enjoy, technical shit, not like socially charged emotional shit. So I rely heavily on the equity I build up in friendships like with you who someone who's fucking immersed in it and then you can distill it for me or buddies that, you know, lifelong friends that I've had who I I feel are like-minded. They help me understand this shit because there's so much nuance and social implication and emotion. If you were to try to leverage the readily available resources in, let's say, media or media outlets, whichever network you subscribe to. It's funny because I go home, my folks are just have burned Fox News logo into their fucking TV. So, like, oh. it's on. So I get exposed to it. I just find it interesting. Okay. You flick the fucking channel and it's like it's, a totally it's different world. Yeah, no, and then you go on, let's say, social media and you see. I uh, I haven't done a the purge, John, like you have. But if I if I were to go on Facebook, which I just don't, um, I'd be curious to see what would be what the algorithm would serve me, you know. And if you were to search on Google, I'd be curious to see what that algorithm would serve, whether it be Esquire or Vanity Fair, based off my viewing history. Uh, <laughs> why well, I, I the, but it's like I, I feel I like a lot of that shit is also like.
1: Well Not uh what are you interested in? I mean like uh right. like, and that's okay. Like, too. Right. like Dave's uh you know, obviously into some political uh some national stuff, but you're also into a lot of local stuff. Hmm. Uh for me, um I'm more interested in like uh what's happening uh, globally. Um, you know, I, I like I try to keep a pulse and understand what's happening within our own neighborhood and this and you know, kind of what's happening here in the state of Texas and like, you know, hey, like like what are the initiatives on a ballot and I um I just remember uh, and I'll go back to my pop on this is the idea that like you know part of being an American and part of like being a citizen of the country is having a cursory understanding of what you're voting on and understanding your candidates and mm-hmm. this and just turning a blind eye and my dad always like, don't be one of those like people that just Goes along and just votes with what everybody else does. Right. And I remember, uh, like, I didn't. Um, my dad wasn't a, a gun owner and didn't believe uh, in guns at all. Um, saw more violence with them than anything. And I remember, like, reading uh, something. I remember Thomas Jefferson wrote and like going through this idea of like, you know, um, you know that it, as a citizen of the of the United States, your ability to be called out in the militia and to be proficient with weapons was this was like paramount for these guys. And I remember them like. The understanding of like writing this into, you know, and then understanding that like what guarantees the First Amendment is the Second Amendment. Like like the freedom of speech, we're going to guarantee freedom of speech with the ability to fight ty- tyranny. And this, you know, and it's funny because I'll see people make the argument for like, well, you know, you need an AR-15 for hunting for the Second Amendment. I'm like, they weren't talking about hunting in the Second Amendment. They were talking about the ability to like fight tyranny. Uh, and the idea that the American people, you know, had to be prepared to be you know, called out in the militia for, you know, the defense. And I remember seeing that and being like, well, I don't really have any money for guns. But like the one day if I do have some, I should be proficient with these. And so that was kind of like my like um, entree into gun ownership. It wasn't that the fact as, that it, as an
2: adult. Yeah. OK.
1: So when I was. Uh, I mean, obviously, dude. We were so broke in college; like, I was just trying to figure out how I was yeah. going to fucking pay yeah. for my next meal. But I remember when Robin. I got to, I, yeah, I remember I got to the NFL and I had extra cash. I was like, well, I should learn to shoot guns, guns and cheese, baby. I like, like <laughs> I, I learned to shoot uh, uh, shotguns and rifles and bows and all that at like uh, at camp, and I was actually a really good shot. And uh, so uh, when I had enough dough to be able to actually own guns and then i was like okay you know i would be a gun owner and so what i i get real wrapped around the axle especially when people are like get into this like you know like why do you need an ar-15 and i'm like well uh first of all they're not weapons of war because AR 15s the military doesn't have ar-15s they have m4s they're like a different weapon there's a fun fun switch but the idea of like uh that being like, well, these are okay, but these aren't when, like, they all do the same thing. It just doesn't, well, you know, why do you need to shoot that many? Well, like, uh, like they all shoot bullets. Like, it just, it's weird to me that people would make the distinctions. It's kind of like, uh, I have two pit bulls. So, wait, you're going to ban pit bulls because some dudes fought dogs, even though my dogs, the only thing they're going to do is, like, try to lick you to death. So, like, it just, to me, like, the, uh, the argument, and then we go through, and they're like, oh, it's, you know, the, the weapon of, mass, you know, of uh, mass shootings. I'm like, well, f- people kill people more with handguns. Uh, like, more people died with claw hammers. Like, it just it feels very sensationalized. And I'll tell you, like, um, uh, I'll tell you, or O'Rourke's probably going to have to move out of Texas. Huh. Like, uh, you know, he should just fold up his candidacy and just move. I mean, like, I'm like, how does that guy even come back to Texas when the state of Texas, I mean, think about, like, the flags. Like, come and take it. Like... Like, that's like a, a pivotal part of Texas history is the idea at the Alamo and, and, Santa, and uh, um, uh, Santa Ana, lay down your weapons, you know, come and take them, you know, like it's just, it, it's unbelievable to me. And like, this has been something that's been very prevalent in our country for many, many years. And then what, but you have people that are willing to trade their rights for the, the illusion of freedom, which doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm, <sighs> I'm, I'm a hundred percent agreement with you. Um,
3: You know, my dad was a cop though, right? And so you see their ability to have to police and and never though growing up was it, ah, we should take guns. But I grew up in the country (sighs) hunting. We did a lot of shooting as a family and that, you know, that was our holidays. Um, And then I got out of that when I got in the army. And so I spent, you know, kind of years not doing any of that stuff. And then similar to you, I guess, as an adult, now that I'm you know, kind of stationary. I've got a family. I've got a place I can make friends and do all those things. Right. Hunting has really been able to come back to the forefront of uh, what you do with your friends and how you build those relationships and you get outside. And for me, it's not even the need for a gun or hey, a type of gun. It's the option to go do that. Right. When I was out shooting that hog last week out there with a friend and we spent the day out there, come back and you're just relaxed because you're out in the woods yeah you're out there doing stuff and then when especially if you go up to Montana and what they're doing on public lands up there that's what separates
1: America from many other countries Did right you it's see the, the size of that elk that Andy stump got oh oh, Dude, oh yeah I uh, I texted that guy and I like I was hoping for some dialogue but he's you know he's too good he's saying out with Joe Rogan and knock TV and all these guys uh, but uh, I hit him up and I was like how big he's like uh, it was 1100 pounds I estimated 1100. Oh, I mean, unbelievable, dude! I was like, "Fuck, man!" Like one, like uh, you know, Andy lives up there, so it's it has access to it. But like you know, young kids, it, you know, he's got to make the time for it. But man, that uh, I'm going me. up
3: there with the state classy guys in a couple of weeks. Um, they're you know nice enough to to say, "Hey, we'll we'll take you on a guided hunt and you know personal guided hunt and pu- some public land." So we're hoping to see something uh, that big up there, much less be in a position to shoot it. Uh, but you spent a lot of time in Montana as a kid, though, didn't you? Or yeah. A fair
1: amount. Yeah. So we would go to Whitefish. My mom's from Lethbridge, which is right across the border in uh, in, Cal- in uh, south of Calgary, and, uh, and so um, we would go to our family reunions up in like Whitefish in that area, and so uh, spent a lot of time up there as a kid. Um, sadly, didn't get to hunt because uh, that really wasn't our deal. She's um, I remember I was like you know in my you know twenties before I really ever got to go you know like hunt anything big. So I remember, uh, you know, pretty exciting, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, man. Like the ability to go outside and be able to do that is, uh, it's just, it's really interesting. And I think the people that are, it seems like the people that are most disconnected from that are the ones that are most fearful of all this stuff. Uh, I like, I think like America's gotten to this idea where, you know, the, uh, you know, people live within this kind of city, like, uh, just, I'll give you an example. Um, in Newport beach, they have a terrible problem going right now with where my family, my brothers live with uh, coyote's. So these coyotes, uh, live down like within like the back bay and they're kind of like in these like packs of coyotes and they basically kill cats and like attack dogs. And it's like this terrible problem, but nobody knows how to deal with the coyotes. And they have this (laughs) whole thing that we have to protect the coyotes and Uh people will be walking their dogs and the coyote will come up and basically like bite the dog and fight the landowner. And like, I'm like, um, why don't you guys hunt the coyotes? Like we just, we kill coyotes. Like they're fucking varmints. They're worthless fucking animals. And you kill them. And then you stake them up because, you know, the whole deal. Nope. So, like, they have these coyotes, and, like, they're trying to, like, extensive, like, trap them. Like, call me. I'll basically get coyotes. I'm, let me stake your dog down there. And when they come over, you just shoot them. Like, it's just... And you could turn this into <sighs> profitable for the state, right? Oh, you could it, open it, up a
3: couple coyote hunts uh, nationwide, it's, buy, it's, you know,
1: bid this thing it, out. It's like the... Uh, but I think what happens is we become... There, there's an idea of, like, when you remove people from this... Uh, there becomes this like disassociation and this moral high ground where it's like you probably just need to go out and visit a farm or go out and walk in the wilderness a little bit. Oh man, we
3: you have that even in the military. We were um uh, my brother had come down to promote me, right? So he was still still with some folks at the time. And so he's he's not in uniform. He's kitted up, bearded. Um so he comes down to promote me. And uh, we're in like the internet tent, right? I oh, mean look man, I was on an airbase, it wasn't terrible. But uh we're in the internet tent. You could dial in like once a day. And uh, this this gal comes up to him, and he had his M4 loaded, right? Because he's literally heading back. Uh, we're flying out like an hour later. He's heading back into the fight with those guys. And uh, she comes up to him and she's like, "Hey, is is that loaded?" <laughs> he's like, "Huh?" She's like, "Yes, yeah, is, is that loaded?" He's like, he's like "What?" Gun strapped all over him. He's like that M4. She's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Yeah, sure is." She's like, "Uh, that's that's not allowed in here." It's like, what? And where we were at, you know, people have been so far removed and afraid of guns that this loaded gun in a combat zone in Iraq was just going to randomly go off and kill somebody. And so he looked at her and he's like, um, yeah, it sure is. W- why? What's the matter? She's like, you, you can't have that loaded in the internet tent. He's like, okay, well, we're good here. Yep. And uh, just
2: unloaded it. See ya. That's how it works. <laughs>
1: But I mean, it's, it's the same, right? Like, uh, you know, people get disconnected from their food source and there's like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, meat just doesn't come within under cellophane at the grocery store. Like, where does it come from? And so big thing for my kids and especially for us, like, uh, you know, whether it be the animals and, you know, however, like, you know, we stay classy or the meat in this, like, I'm always real big on showing them like, this is what the animal, like I was, we had a Buffalo uh, the other day, we got a, uh, you know, our monthly stay classy box and we were going through all the cuts. And so I like pulled up like a deal of like, Hey, this is where this cut comes from and this is where it all goes through. And this is how you cook it. And so I, what I never want them to do is disassociate like where this comes from. And like, then I constantly, I'm like, uh, my daughter's asked yesterday. She's like, are there people that just eat meat? I'm like, yeah, they're called carnivores. And I'm like, cats are carnivores. And then we went through this whole thing of like, we're, we're omnivores which are people that eat everything. And then there's vegetarians and herbivores and went through all these different, you know, deal. And, uh, then she asked me, she was like, well, how do you know which one you are? And I was like, well, obviously canine teeth would be an indicator if you look at cats. And we went through like this whole kind of learning process and it's like, you know, and then they go, well, well, what are horses? And I'm like, well, horses are part of the rudiments. They, they eat grass and they have multiple stomachs that go through. And I went through with cows and Buffalo and I, the goats and all this. And, It was like they are able to convert those calories within the grass into calories. And then we eat those because they can convert this forage, uh, you know, and grass into usable calories for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just pretty interesting, like, going through and, like, and then sitting back and thinking, like, what if I was, like, you know... Well, uh, you know, it's wrong to, to eat meat. You know, I mean, like I just was thinking of like other people's perception of like, you know, this is so terrible. And, then, and I just thought like, fuck, man, like what are other people teaching their kids? And I think part of the reason we moved here to Texas was uh, I felt that we were disassociated from the real world and nature living within this, like, you know, bubble of Orange County where everything is, you know, everybody gets a $100,000 car when they turn 16. And, you know, for your senior trip, you get to go to Hawaii or uh, uh, Europe for a month with all your friends. Like, it just, it's not the fucking real world. And how does that prepare people for the future? I had that conversation, similar conversation with Vanna, right, and
3: my daughter, and then Go through it. A couple weeks later we're we eating some deer or something and uh she's like, Daddy, did you shoot this? I was like like, hang my head in shame, like, no. <laughs> you know, we, we got that from somebody. Okay. Fast forward two more weeks, same question. No. <laughs> it's like, are you going to shoot any of the food we eat?
1: Well, we. Uh, I was like, ah,
3: oh, that's why I'm going hunting, honey. It's not hunting season yet. Like, so,
1: so we, we've had a pretty solid like between nine and twelve deer show up like two to three times a day to to feed. Oh, like the. I saw you got new feeders. Yeah, yeah. Well, the horses. Yeah, so the the horses. Which just uh, as a heads
2: up, are single stomach animals. They're just herbivores. Oh, I thought they had multiple stomachs. Mm-hmm.
1: Did you just look that up? Yeah. Want to hey, I fucked, Okay, well, I was wrong on that one. I thought they had multiple. The symptoms. term is monogastric. Oh, okay. Gastric. So, they, so, so I how like to not correct people? I in thought, public? No, no, it's good. Uh, I, well, I this is wide
2: broadcast. This is going to dozens of people, and That's I don't fair. want them to be misled. And then, next thing you know,
1: oh, so right. they're, so, the so they're poor
2: horses are miscategorized. The line you know, is a little bit.
1: Okay, you well, were that's, saying. Well, that's good. I'll have to go research that one a little bit because I gave my daughter wrong information. No, they
2: can live with that. That's
1: uh, so. <laughs> Callie, edit out that correction. So we had, um, uh, you know, we had the barrels on the on the tripods. Yeah. So the horses came over and kicked them all over wow. and smashed them. So I went and I found some other ones. And the other problem too was that the the way that the solar worked and those overheated. So I had to get just more durable ones. And then I also wanted ones on skids that I could move around. So for my birthday, I basically bought new feeders. Are they brother. spitting out or are they sitting on? Huh? no they're spitting out okay so and they're uh they're they're solar they're super durable they're made of galvanized so the horses could like come in and kick them and do whatever they want but uh, we've had a pretty good um we had a pretty good doe population uh or i'm sorry uh um uh the little fawns so like we've i think we had six fawns this year oh so last year we got three three bucks and so there's been uh uh the only two bucks are like kind of like i might have overtaken yeah, those yeah well. probably should have we should, should've, maybe should have gone some dough route. Well, year. we're, we're going to have to get some does, but there's just a lot of mamas this year. So we'll have to get some does. this year. The big year. guy got hit on the road, though. Yeah, I'm still upset about that. And then some asshole went and stole them. Kate's like the big buck's on the road. So, long story short, I, I had this this big buck. I had pictures of him, and I've been stalking him to the point where I let him go last year mm-hmm. to try to get him in a last or for la, or sorry, two years ago for last year. And then uh, about a week before hunting season, my wife's driving the kids to school, and she sees him. He got hit on the side of the road, and so she called me. I got it took me like ten minutes to go down, and he was already gone. So somebody was like, "I'm taking that home." And uh, but yeah, so then we ended up getting the second in command and the third in command. So should you can
2: pick those up yet.
1: No, I haven't. I got to okay. go get that.
2: You yeah. should see them. So I, scra- I grabbed that bow, uh, that buck hanging over the m- place right now. So,
3: Oh, you went and picked it up. Oh, you, oh it up. you drove that. So in bet- with a new
1: kid, you have time to drive all the way over there. Yeah. It- <laughs> no, I'm fucking with you. Yeah. I need to go. I, I, last time I called, it wasn't ready, but that was probably like four months ago, five mm-hmm. months ago. So I got to call the dude again. I had, uh,
3: I had stopped in there and it, like just to check on it. I was doing some shooting up there. And, uh, yeah, it was probably four months ago, though, so yeah. hopefully it's ready now. I just got mine back from Montana, which, eh, you know, nice. not as big as you'd like when you ah, wait I nine years to go up there, right, and you're like, ah.
2: Uh, starter. It's a starter. It's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I right. Can re- my old man still has his – no, he doesn't. He took it down. He, for the longest time, his very first buck was up over the fireplace mantle with like and he would just update each head mount as he got better, and better trophies. But he kept that his original buck there out of principle. And he's like, you know what? It's got to come down. So I don't know where it's at, but because he's been doing this for fucking 20 years. Yeah. Right. So he's got a ton of mounts.
1: So he didn't start hunting till he was doing the sporties, huh?
2: No, he had always hunted, but then mostly waterfowl. Mm. So he was big bird hunter and then didn't want to do deer because it just wasn't enough action for him right cuz deer you're sitting there and, and you're scouting and
1: my buddy Joe same thing yeah. uh like like travels all over like uh Mexico and this whole thing like they have all these like rice fields and bird hunting is like his jam cuz every day you get
2: action you get you, yeah. you you limit out and it's that's the thing and uh you get to go with your dog it's kind of social you have a you can sit there with a partner but then he got to a point where he just like fucking became crotchety and salty and f- hated his hunting partners and he's like I enjoy the time alone you know my sister and I probably got old enough to be a pain in the ass. And he's just like, I'm going to sit here in complete silence for eight hours, three days in a row and not get a thing. And it'll be great. Mm-hmm. You know? And it just, that never there was never an interest to him until later his 40, yeah, in his forty, in his
3: forties. I didn't deer hunt growing up either. It was all bird. Mm-hmm. And as not got to be an adult, maybe, maybe there's more to that than I thought. Uh, mm-hmm. That might be it too, because basically since I've had kids, I've just,
2: <laughs> I'm good. Deer yeah. Out. Well, we're gonna go there and sit and <laughs> in, uh, in, like. But he's in Illinois, so like the Big weather, deer. the bugs, like it's just shitty conditions yeah. where he's at. He's Cold. next to a swamp. Ugh. You know, it's rainy, and he's like, yeah, it sounds good. Big I'm, deer. I'm alone though, right? Like I'm alone. Yeah, if I can bring it. So. Um, and I remember he he had me sit out in the stand. I must have been 10 years old, and I was just so, like, just mind up. Like I'm like, can I bring my Game Boy? You know, like, I guess the equivalent of what a smartphone would be now. He's like, no, can't do that. And he's like, you just sit there and you think, and I lasted four hours and just called it quits, like, I, and then... St- never wanted to do but blind. i always enjoy
3: Blinds have changed now though man i took dean two years ago so he'd have been five mm-hmm. and uh we were in kentucky and some some friends have a place with a, a pretty big four-person blind right so we get out there two in the afternoon we're out there till like six thirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah four hours but brought dean's cars it was carpeted on the bottom so dean's having a blast get the binoculars out. I mean, we also had, you know, 20-some deer in the field that day. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's looking at all of them. Um, But that's been his experience. I'm like, well, take them where they can. (laughs) you can afford for them to sit and play, right? I don't know that he'd be down for sitting in an open stand for some hours.
2: Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, and he's like, maybe you'll get a pass shot, you know? So there he is with the 10-year-old, gave me a rifle, couldn't tell you what rifle it was. And he's like, if a deer runs by, just lead it you know, probably shot. It, yeah, it had to be a 12, 12, it had, to be, a 12, it had yeah. to be slug. Yeah. And he's like, just lead it and aim for the shoulder and call or come get me. If you hit something and like, see ya, <laughs> that was it. That was my experience. Cool. So, so you're going to get back into it or what? I think so. I got a kid. I've I got heard, a lot of- I've heard that three years now. We've been
3: friends. Part of the first conversation we had was, Oh, Hey, I'm going on the cell it looks like, yeah, I'll go, mm-hmm. man. I'd
2: love to do that. Mm-hmm. No, like everybody else. No, hang on, hang on. First off, Timing was not optimal, right? Because A, like an idiot, decided to get married. So then you're, you're, you're well, staring. Well,
1: you dated for 10 years. I mean, it was You can inevitable. press that to
2: 15, right? That's a doable. Away the best years or I made a mistake of not getting married early, earlier. Yeah, yeah, Either yeah, you way you want to put like Timing was not, though, because then now, now you're saving for a wedding, right? And then, um, then after that, now we're buying a house. Then after that, we're having hour, a baby. Exactly. And there's just, it became a budget issue. And not only was it a budget issue, you know how cheap I am.
1: Well, he doesn't want to waste his Well, He'll only go if he can borrow your bullets. Yeah. <laughs> Who's, whose bullets we shooting? <laughs> well, yeah, and the worst part is you have a reloader. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> only guy I know reloading 22, 250, <laughs> right? Like 222, 22, 22 oh, 250. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's what? What's wrong with that?
3: You're gonna shoot a ton of it, man. A thousand rounds. <laughs> Guess that's why you would reload it, right? But mm-hmm. uh, no.
2: over the, a thousand rounds, you save in you save seventeen cents a round.
1: Do that math. math? Go Nobody ahead. knows. One hundred seventy dollars. Hey, mm-hmm. Not worth my time. One
2: hundred seventy dollars over. 20 years. No, like four... It's four hours of work, I'd say. Four to eight hours of work.
3: No work. fucking... Okay, if that's true, then you've been lying for the last year as you were preparing for that, that trip. Oh, I, God, I got, well, got... You know, I got to get everything set up. Well, nah, No, I got, I got well, to Luke's, think about getting uh, it.
1: really good at like over... Like over... Um, I guess, like, what's the word? Like, making a mountain out of a molehill. Overcomplicating? I'm going to need six to seven hours to be able to get on this website and be able to log in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's Mm -hmm. really good at overestimating. I'm like, well, you just just hit the button. Yeah, yeah, but you got to, like, prepare to hit the buttons.
2: some of us plan ahead instead of just do it live and fuck it up. That's why you go in, 90% of the time spent planning, thinking, (laughs) thinking. Dreaming. Visualizing. Planning. And then you execute flawlessly. Sounds like a donter is what I'm hearing from you. Why well, don't be a donter? Be a, a doer. doer. You do the donting till you do. Oh, oh it's all right. <laughs> you got a don't to do. It's complicated. It's part of the system. Mm-hmm. But um, was this a roast? Uh, Am I getting roasted oh, now? Nah,
4: it's back on you, buddy. <laughs> burn bands on, on. Pretty quiet over here, buddy. Mm-hmm. Take it all in. This is the first burn Luke's had on this podcast. No, you fucking liars. I listen well, yeah. to when I'm not on <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably Damn. the only one who listens to it when I'm not on.
2: Yeah. But so with Spanton, things coming on. What's so your onto greener pastures now?
3: I am Blackhawk lending. Mm-hmm. Um, we partner with new American funding. So direct lender uh, to provide VA loans for veterans. Uh, we, we run the lead generation portion in the brand and building out with veterans, and then we donate back into the community. So two first first two partnerships we built were with Project Healing Waters, so getting veterans out, fly fishing, trying to help get some of the time they need outdoors, and then just um, start donating to heroes and horses up in Montana for somebody who wants to spend a little more time in the mountains. It's a pretty intense 40 day experience. So no. not everybody needs to be up there, but it's a great organization. So if you're looking for some organizations donate to, they're having an impact, those are two. Um, And then we also do conventional loans as well. So New American Funding runs all of the direct lending portion of that. And they've just got outstanding customer service. It's like five seconds. If you're looking for a home, they'll call you back um, and go from there. Well, I know
2: I went through them. And how long should this take? And you're like, ah, maybe, you know, it's like two to five minute turn. And it's like submit. And then I'm getting text messages from the dudes already. Like they text, they emailed and called all. Like they hit every touch point, of which I didn't answer any of
3: them. Right. Maybe a little overzealous. <laughs> I had a buddy. Uh, I had a buddy that's out there flying for the day. They got like six phone calls a day. So a little overzealous at first, but I like it, right? Trying to yeah. reach out. So it dialed that back a little bit. Uh, but yeah, that's where we're going. So if you want to help out, every every bit that you do helps out a veteran. And that's kind of what we're all about. Because
2: so. mm-hmm. cool. that's just that's a nasty situation now, too.
4: Yep. I'd appreciate it.
2: Well, you got anything else, big guy? No, I'm good.
4: What about you? Can't wait to uh, learn about our upcoming election in your home. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) The intern. Will there
3: be snacks? There will be light refreshments.
2: You need tamales?
3: I could always get you
2: tamales. Some side
4: tamales? (laughs) You (laughs) can bring those side tamales. That'd be great. Dessert dessert tamales.
2: Ah, yes, yes. Dave, thanks as always, man. Ladies and gentlemen, head to blackhawklending.com. Get a quote. Are you thinking about refinancing? Buying a home? Do it. Don't not do it. Wait, don't do don't until you do. Think about that. It's my new campaign. Be a
1: doer. Don't be a lucre. Mm. Ooh.
2: Ooh. Oh, do we have to go to school, Drop on,
1: drop
0: Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Whether you're looking to buy a home or help out veterans, visit Dave's site, blackhawklending.com. Until next time, Bye!